This is the Portland Firefighters Association Senior Firefighter Podcast. I'm Joseph Keenest. In this series, I host high-performing Portland Fire and Rescue members who talk about their insights, experiences, and lessons learned. In the American Fire Service, these men and women have historically been known as the senior firefighter or the senior man. What makes a senior man? As my guests demonstrate, it has nothing to do with time on the job, rank, or gender, and everything to do with a winning mindset, technical mastery, character, and a commitment to self-improvement and mentorship. These long-form conversations are far-ranging, but center around two core themes, the roles and responsibilities of senior firefighters and the dynamics of mental performance on the fire ground. This project would not be possible without the help of Kyle McLowry, and thank you to Local 43 for providing the recording equipment and studio. Without further introduction, let's start the conversation. Today we've got Jason Kelly with us here today. Jason, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Appreciate you being here. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's start at the beginning. Where did uh, where did you grow up? Yeah. Uh, so in 1975, do the math on that one. Born and raised in Walla Walla, Washington. So lived there until I uh, went to college in Spokane Community College in yeah. uh, 95. Okay. So it's what? a good little one horse town, you know, about 30,000 yeah. at the time. Uh, largely the two biggest influences were agriculture and the state pen. <laughs> All right. Uh, what, uh, what was your, like, did you grow up in the country or were you in town or? Yeah. Yeah. My, my upbringing was a little unique in the sense that, uh, I grew up on a ranch, third generation wheat ranch, about 600 acres. Um, so for my great grandpa, that was the right amount because you were harvesting wheat by horse. Okay. But as the uh, industrial revolution came around, that's too small of a wheat ranch to own all that harvesting equipment. It's just not cost effective. So, uh, when I was younger, we had already um, basically contracted out to uh, a harvester, and they basically you sign a contract or a lease, and they harvest your land, and okay. you get a percent or yield of that crop. Um, but with that said, there was about a hundred acres that um, is all all rodeo. My family's all rodeo. Oh, you know, really? Yeah, full arena shoots stadium lighting my dad would have big ropings you know all wow. summer long he was a pro rodeo guy that really didn't give it up until his later 20s and then got a job with the cascade natural gas the gas company okay um, my mom was a nurse so on one hand you had a guy that was kind of rough and tumble and then on the other hand you had uh, a nurse that was very compassionate and loving so I'm pretty much comfortable in a wide variety of yeah. uh, settings. So, yeah. grow, I mean, I have to imagine growing up, it's it's all farm all the time. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, you know, just grab a shotgun, go hunt pheasants on the ranch. You know, there was a irrigation canal that was kind of like a, a river. It had a big waterfall and stuff. So, yeah, I mean... I grew up on a ranch, you know, riding motorcycles, riding horse, shooting guns. Yeah. Yeah. Did you like it? Getting into trouble. It was, it was me. Yeah. It was, it was fun. You know, I've always been adventurous and, um, you know, just kind of been a boundary pusher. Um, but with that said, I, I transitioned because 
horses is a lifestyle, right? You, yeah. Like you got to love those animals. You got to care for those animals. You got to feed those animals. You, you, you know, you got to lodge them. Yeah. I transitioned to motorcycles, the, the, the uh, large love for motorcycles, because I got all the adventure I wanted, Yeah, and then I just put it away. Okay, as a kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's, not, it's not a prey animal. A motorcycle is not a prey animal that's, that's right. scared of everything that comes along, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, folks divorced when I was uh, in first grade. And was unique because my mom ended up just renting a house that was like five miles away from the ranch. So when we transitioned back and forth, mm -hmm. we just rode horses. My sister and I, she's three years older. So I think she was, what, 10 and I was seven. We'd ride horses throughout the country just to get back and forth wow. from wow. dad's house, mom's house. So, yeah, a pr pretty unique childhood in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Did you like school? Did you have fun in school? I enjoyed the social aspects of school. And, and when I found a topic I was interested in, I, I definitely um, was all in and thrived. But um, as far as just getting good grades and being in compliance and, you know, thinking about the future in that regard, doors open, doors closed, I was kind of a live for the moment kind of kid. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you went to Spokane Community mm. College, what was, um, did you have an idea of where you wanted to go with that? Yeah, yeah. So to back up a little bit, um, my first introduction to the fire service was um, my mom got remarried. We moved on Lakati Lane, which was in suburban Walla Walla, like on a one acre. And across the street was a large um a large uh, family um, and uh, the captain or, or the, the dad, sorry, Catholic is what I'm trying to spit out, a mm -hmm. large Catholic family. I think they had eight kids and their, ver their youngest was uh, Randy. He was a year younger than me. So we ended up being really good friends and probably best of friends. Okay. Well, his dad was one of two captains in the Walla Walla Fire Department. Mm -hmm. there, there were only two stations. So in no time, I was one of his kids, and he would take me into the fire station. All the guys would take good care of us, you know, sit on the fire apparatus, yeah. just have that exposure. Yeah. As well as, you know, Pete himself was just, you know, just just a, a five-star dad, five-star firefighter, just, just the best of the best. So uh, out of my respect and admiration for him, as well as just my exposure to the fire service, it, the seed was planted pretty much on day one. Wow. Um, but what really buried and watered the seed was I was in the fourth grade and Walla Walla Fire bought a brand new Quint and they sent Pete to go pick it up. And okay. I want to say it was Tennessee or somewhere in, uh, you know, the Midwest. Well, he drove all the way back to Walla Walla. Whoa. And his first stop when he got into town was to pick up Randy and I. Oh, no kidding. So we got on that brand new Quint, rode that thing around town, and then he brought it to the fire station. And that was it for me. I was all in. Yeah. Hooked for yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 So moving forward, um, as a senior in high school, I had the opportunity to interview, and I got on as a resident firefighter for Walla Walla District 4. So my senior year of high school, I was living at a fire station, responding to incidents, 
And, you know, moving forward, jumping a few chapters, um, I've never left the fire service. Mm -hmm. This is Portland's my fourth department. I okay. also worked for the Forest Service. I have a, you know, a two-year degree, uh, fire science degree okay. in Spokane, but I've been in the fire service since I was 18 years old. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what did that look like? So you go, you're at Walla Walla mm -hmm. as a resident and mm -hmm. then doing a fire science degree mm -hmm. at the college at, in, in Spokane. In Spokane while I'm living yeah. at District 8, which is a combination department, had five stations, I think 15 paid guys. Um probably 50 volunteers and they heavily relied on residents for four out of the five stations. Um, so I was one of about 15 residents and all but one of us um, were in the fire science program or had graduated from that program. This is in 96, um, you know, Chemeketa and Spokane Community College were largely the only programs mm. where you could get a fire science degree. Okay. Yeah, it's not like today. Yeah. It was it was rather niche. Mm -hmm. What were the what was the culture like at those you know those places that you started out with respect to you know training and learning? Yeah. From those senior guys. Um, it was good. Yeah. I mean, everyone was dedicated to their craft focused on excellence and, and getting better. And, you know, when you're training 18, 19, 20 year old men and women, like it's a blank canvas, right? So they got a lot of ground to cover yeah. as well as these are departments that are probably seeing maybe four or five structure fires a year. Okay. So the paid guys, they're trying to keep themselves sharp. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 Did you get some work? Some good work when you were... You know, it's funny, and I would answer that with my Coeur d'Alene job. Coeur d'Alene okay. was the first paid job I ever had. Okay. Um, so Coeur d'Alene at the time had two stations, but they relied very heavy on mutual aid just because all the surrounding departments, Hayden, Kootenai County, they're all, you know, small departments, and... Um, so any working structure fire, we were on it. So to answer your question, like, I thought I was doing it. <laughs> I was on, I want to say it was engine 41, and we were going on probably a couple structure fires a month. And some of these runs, Joseph, were like 25-minute response. And we'd show yeah. up to... Burn down buildings, yeah. burn buildings that, you know, we were defensive on. I can only think of two fires where we were offensive when we were getting after it. Okay. Everything else was, um, you know, largely just surrounded around defensible mm -hmm. fires, but you only know what you know. Yeah. And at the time I thought, especially coming from two smaller combination, um, you know, residencies, I was like, oh, yeah. this is it, man. Yeah. Um, we, I am killing the game here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Did you have your, your sights set on a bigger urban department from the beginning? Yeah. Or? Yeah. So the, the process for me and kind of my cadre, if you will, you know, the guys that I was testing with in my class once we graduated, um, we just tested the Northwest pretty heavily. Okay. So at, at the time, you know, you go through these cyclical waves of retirements and we're kind of on the cusp of, of another one. And, and the origin of that is, you know, after World War II, you know this, but the government, they just had all these, you know, men that they had to put to work. Yeah. 
So the fire service was kind of in its infancy in terms of paid departments, and and it was a two platoon system. Right. You you were there for twenty four, and you were home for twenty four, yeah. and that was it. Well, they added the third platoon, so that cycle still exists. You know, it's been you know some of the edges have been filed off a little bit, but that still exists. So, um, long rambling point. Um, when I was testing, not a big. Um, the first couple years, just not a big hiring spree in the Northwest. So, but lo and behold, got three offers. I got offered Coeur d'Alene. I got offered District Nine, North Spokane, and lo and behold, I opened a letter from Portland Fire and Rescue that said, "Hey, congratulations! We'd like to offer you this job, and you're going to start in 18 months." And I thought, okay, well, wow, that's, that's a long time. I think I'll take this Coeur d'Alene job mm-hmm. and I'll just have this in my back pocket. Oh, so, yeah. so I went to Coeur d'Alene and, um, you know who Rick Lasky is? Uh, no, haven't met him. Rick Lasky, he's got a podcast with John Salka. He's wrote several books. He was a um, chief out of, uh, Chicago. Mm. Um, he, one of the early instructors of FDIC, a class called saving your own, which basically just firefighter mayday. Um, and then was a contributing editor for over a decade with fire engineering. Well, he took a chief job with Coeur d'Alene. So that's the guy that hired me. And he's a 10. Yeah. Um, so I went to work for Rick Lasky, who was changing the culture in Coeur d'Alene and trying to get it up to, hey, we're a progressive fire department. We need another station. We need funding. We need to train every day. need better turnouts. need better apparatus. Um, so I was on that wave and it was an incredible wave Hmm. and all the incumbents were inspired and it it was just this era where you know everything was positive wow um so here i am again i'm doing it like i think i'm living the life and coeur d'alene is a spectacular place to live i mean strong four seasons you weren't priced out at the time outstanding summers lakes Mm -hmm. all around you in the winter incredible ski joints all around you mountains um, it was it was killer. Yeah. So about a year goes by, and that 18 months turns into about four months. So I asked to meet with uh, Chief Lasky, go into his office, sit down, pull out the letter, slide it over to him, and I said, Chief, I'm at a fork in the road here, and I just want to be open and transparent with you, um, but I also want your advice. And he just looks at me in this big Chief Lasky, shit-eating grin and mm-hmm. smiles. And he goes, I just want to verify. You have no family here? You're from Walla Walla, right? I said, yeah, Chief. He goes, you don't have any kids. You're not married, right? I said, yeah, that's right, Chief. He goes, I'd love to keep you. But you will have opportunities and experiences there that you will never achieve here in Coeur d'Alene. Yeah. So that's a you decision. But with that said, if you want my advice, that's where you go if you're all into the fire service. Yeah. That's great advice, obviously. Yeah. I mean, you can see the big picture. Yeah. I mean, even with the investment that, um, you know, they had put into you up to that point and trying to change the culture. And they, I mean, they obviously knew that they had somebody that was going to commit to their department all the way with his effort to modernize that, that organization. But... Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, 
sometimes it's just happenstance and you know we'll get in i hope we can get into this later about culture and just surrounding oh, yourself yeah. with excellence but um yeah i mean a lot of the success in my life and in my career was just having great people around me and having sound advice mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean the fire service really is j- just a, particularly a large department like this it, you're just around so much experience and so many guys that just have can steer you in the right direction if you just ask for it and you know which horses to hook your wagon to yeah for sure right yeah yeah Yeah, definitely yeah i mean you're going to get advice either way (laughs) you're going (laughs) to you're going to get yeah examples of yeah of all kinds yeah so so you packed your bags head for headed for portland i did yeah and with my eyes wide open the, the only time i'd been to portland was to test Okay. So I had been here twice, one to take the written, um, and the next two, uh, yeah, I think it was twice. Next to take, no, two, two or three times, anyhow, it was written, physical, and then the chief's interview, yeah. Who was on your interview panel, do you remember? The chief's interview? Yeah. Um, I, I remember Chief Jansen's and Chief Robert Wall. Okay. Which was who hired me. Uh, I came in during the wall regime. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that was when? Um, so I got hired in 2000. Okay. So that interview was probably either early 2000 or 99. Okay. Yeah. And then did you come in? I mean, you obviously had been on the job for a bit. Did you come in as a as an apprentice or did you come in as a, as a firefighter? Well, it's a good question um, and certainly not without controversy because I know some paid guys personally that applied for um, the entrance exam and were denied because of their experience. When I applied, I was not a paid guy. Um, So I had asked, uh, what's the recruiter, Erwin Warren, salt of the earth, shout out to Erwin Warren, just one of the best guys ever. But he said, Jason, I think you should go through the apprentice, Um, you know, Yes, you have a fire science degree, but you're not a paid guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I made sure to, you know, emphasize that point in the interview that, yeah, I'm a paid guy now, but um, I wasn't at the time. And all that does is, from my perspective, it just brings more experience to your organization. Yeah. Yeah. So so you come and start tech as a as an apprentice yeah. right off the bat yeah who are do you remember who your trainers were oh yeah tech? of course i mean yeah you never something you never forget <laughs> yeah, for sure yeah so it was uh nicole needham at the time nicole fuge um but uh and sean christensen and john nor was the captain okay yeah so yeah really had just an outstanding cadre um you know if you know nicole and sean they're just high character people hard working um a little more on the reserve side, as was John Knorr. So this was a class that um, of instructors where you had to earn your own merit and mm-hmm. you had to figure it out. You know, you were certainly given the instructions you needed and the direction, and yeah. you had your syllabus, but um, not a lot of brave heart speeches, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that later. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so I mean, a good experience in tech. You felt right. like those those trainers were there they had your back and they were trying to guide you through the yeah through the process. i mean how lucky was i to be in a, a one-year 
total immersion program where no stone was unturned. The drill ground, the apparatus, four-person companies, yeah. all these different hose evolutions. Again, back to my earlier statement, like, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, I certainly experienced that when you were, the, you know, you were my TAC trainer, firefighter, and yeah. with EB and Wayne Taylor. and. Yeah. And I remember you bringing up that point, and obviously, I mean, I didn't know what I didn't know. I had basically no exposure to the fire service prior to getting hired, yeah. and really emphasizing that point of four-person staffing. Yeah. And, you know, certainly coming from a background with probably primarily three-person, you know, rigs, that, you know, what an opportunity that is for us, and kind of like trying to explain <laughs> the importance of something uh to people that have no idea how important that is. It's, it's, yeah. it's kind of a funny position to be in, but um, yeah, I mean, it, so then going to twos. Yeah, can I just inject? Um, yeah, please. Four person companies. It's the biggest force multiplier in the fire service. Um, this is my position, but um, you, you can go anywhere in the country. If you don't have four person companies, you cannot support the, the type of aggressive firefighting that we do here. Sure. That's it. Yeah. I mean, there are certainly other parts to that vehicle, um, but four person companies is the engine. So yeah, we, we can talk about, there's a lot to like, and there's a lot to be frustrated with, um, in Portland fire and rescue. But again, if you're a purist and you're a fan of the fire service and you want to go to work, yeah, this is one of the places you want to be. Yeah. 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 And as I understand, I mean, this last contract, being able to solidify that four-person language is, yeah. it, I mean, that's a huge milestone for us. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. It's awesome. And often overlooked, I think. It's something that, especially guys like me who came in with no other experience yeah. outside, you know, in that other world with three, yeah. it's, it's all that we've ever known. Yeah. And so we just expect, like, well, of course we have four people showing yeah. up on every rig. Yeah. So. Yeah. Is this a safe space for inappropriate stories? <laughs> there is no other safer no, space other than on the rig with headsets. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's good to have some stories in a podcast. But, um, you know, back in the day when um, I've always rode motorcycles and we can ask the why. And there's 100% some parallels with, with being an incident commander and hauling ass, mm -hmm. riding tough trails and sketchy uh, mountains on a motorcycle. But anyhow... We used to go to Idaho every year, and mm -hmm. I'd go with just some of the best guys this organization has uh, to offer. And I think you've interviewed one of them recently, Jason Stensgard, and and uh, we we go to this bar. Um, we would do the 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 rock star Idaho, so we wouldn't camp out in Little Gem. We would ride in Little Gem and go to all these great uh, you know OHV parks out there but then we'd go stay in hotels and go to bars and stuff we're all single guys you know in our 20s and whatnot and we were at this cowboy bar in Boise Idaho and they had a mechanical bull and we're just we're drinking too much we're, we're young firefighters with great careers tons of time off at Idaho drinking yeah. way too much and um, somehow this gal that we were hanging out with and had befriended she starts running her mouth that we're all firefighters from boise well there was a couple boise firefighters there and they approached us in a pretty hostile way like they were they were and i get it like if they're defending their territory there are all kinds yeah. of stories about guys out there saying that they're portland firefighters and they're not like it's you know this 
that that's a threat. Yeah. So he comes up to us. I quickly diffuse the whole thing. Um, tell him, you know, now we're from Portland. We come annually. I know a couple guys. I went to high school with a couple guys. Or excuse me, I went to college with a couple guys that you've hired. Name mm. dropped. The situation kind of resolves and t- takes more of a lighthearted. Well, yeah. Here comes another guy from Boise that's a little bit hostile, and he, you know, he's just basically giving us the we're better than you. And I let him unpack the whole thing and how many fires they get and how many stations they have. And I just just actively listening because I knew I had the ace card. <laughs> and I let him run his mouth for five minutes. And when he was all done, I said, do you guys run three or four person companies? And he said, three person companies. And then he looked at the ground. <laughs> because if you're in the fire service, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, you're waiting for somebody else to go inside. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so, speaking of four-person companies, yeah. you go to Engine 2 from TAC. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, can we talk about you for a minute? Um, so, yeah, well, I first met you, and, and by the way, thank you for doing these podcasts. You know, I, I had a really good conversation with uh, the great Matt Coffey, maybe three, four months ago. And and he said something that sticks with me to this day because he wants to write a book or have several contributors write chapters in a book. Yeah. And he said to me, he said, Jason, our story is unique and it needs to be told. And, and I mm. agree with that. And I think this is part of that statement in action. So tip of the hat to you for, um, you know, leading this process and interviewing some great people, um, aside from, you know, excluding me, of course. But um, I just think that this is a great department and our story needs to be told as well as, you know, it, it it's good to really deep dive and get to know people that maybe don't have a lot of interaction. To yes. You, you know, that is a huge part of what I want to come out of this is that it's so, I agree completely. And I mean, we are in such a unique time in this department. I mean, both from the situation of the city, um, testing us in a variety of different ways. I mean, from the pandemic to the number of fires and emergencies that we're responding to constantly. And we're also at a pivot point where there's been enough, um, you know, the internet really has existed to a degree that we're now starting to see some real broad reaching effects of people coming together and information being shared where typically it was siloed uh, in larger urban departments, which have been, you know, employing these traditional tactics that just haven't made it out. I mean, FDIC, sure. Or, you know, someone the rare transfer from a big department out to some other place like you were talking about with chief lasky so i mean we're at a really unique time i mean i yesterday i was at station two um going through some high-rise material with the recruits and and i mean i told them and i genuinely feel this way that there is no better time to be a new portland firefighter i mean this is this is an incredible time to be on the job here in this city and whatever we have lost from previous generations in terms of, you know, experience or um, some cultural things not getting passed down to us, you know, however that may be, um, we're really at a great spot to recapture that 
um, that experience and that knowledge and then develop a culture of stewardship of that knowledge and that experience to pass on to the next generation. And we have, you know, it's like you said, we got so many great people and it's common for them to be in their houses, you know, and, and not necessarily interact with a lot of other members because with crew sense, you can sign up in house, right? And if you're at a technical house, chances are you're going to sign up for your station. So you have to pack your bag every day you go out. So that in some ways further silos, those members and even members that, um, for whatever reason are trying to, um, continue to work at those slower houses, right? For whatever reason, they don't necessarily interact at those busier companies. Yeah. You know, those that, uh, I heard you refer to as the 4,000 club. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, like a complimentary level of high speed training from our training division. We're, you know, we're in, it's a, it's a tricky situation to navigate, um, which can really lead to a spectrum of, you know, ability really. So yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you saying that. Um, the more that people can get to know each other and build those relationships. I mean, I said, you know, talking to, um, to Braxton the other day, I'm not someone generally who is good at developing new relationships. Like I kind of do my thing and then yeah. whoever I come into contact with, I'm not like, I'm not the person at a party begging to be handed a guitar and sing a song. Yeah. <laughs> that is not me. And I, one of the things I really like is how many times I've been wrong about people. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate that experience where I get an impression of somebody because I don't really know them or you hear a story yeah. or you get an idea and then you get to know them a little bit yeah. or you hear a conversation like this. Yeah. It's like, wow, that, that, of course, that person's depth of personalities is so much more broad than I expected. You yeah. know, there's so much there. And if you only have these surface level interactions all the time, uh, you know, of course you're not going to, there's not going to be that relationship yeah. or maybe even the potential. So yeah. this is, yeah, this is absolutely part of that. Yeah. So it's, it's been amazing just this far. And, yeah. um, I'm really looking forward to, you know, getting even more people in here, but certainly you're on that list of, you know, members that I wanted to have in here on that initial group, you know, to generate interest, um, for other people that may be reluctant to come in and, yeah. um, I mean, nobody likes doing it, like yeah. sitting in front of a microphone and talking about yeah. themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm sure there are people out there that love it, but that's not really, you know, that's not necessarily personality wise who we're looking for anyway. Yeah, no, well, well said. Thanks for unpacking all that on point. So yeah, a couple of things, if I can just echo tip of the hat to training, we, I'd love to, man, I'd, this retire rehire if they said yeah you could only do it if you start over at tac i'd say cool let's do it yeah, where do i sign up yeah um we just have great instructors a great program um and, and we're in the business of uh a, th yeah, a thousand perishable skill sets and you yeah. you gotta stay sharp you gotta stay focused education training experience that that's how you keep a thousand to two thousand things if you're out of specialty Right. Um, Cause there's even more yeah. sharp and relevant. Um, but yeah, you talked about archiving, you know, um, I go back and I listen to fires, audio tapes of 20 years ago, 15 years ago, because I, I'm curious how those guys ran incidents. I'm curious if our strategy and tactics changed. 
Um, I'm curious what the CAN and B team reports, you know, sounded like back then, et cetera, and just, just the progression of our fire department. Um, and then when it talks about just when you talked about unpacking these conversations long form, um, not only is it important to get to know one another, but you want to know my perspective. You should. And I want to know your perspective because I'm going to hand select, just like any advice, I'm going to hand select what I like and what works for me and what I want to, you know, throw in my backpack of tools. Yeah. And if there's, if I say something that I disagree with or you say something, then I'm just going to respectfully not follow that advice or not follow that path. So, um, internally, it's important for us to have these conversations with our members. And I hate to get all nostalgic, but I started when we had dorms, right? Yeah. There, there were no rooms to right. go hide in. Um, now, granted, it was a different uh, call volume, et cetera. It was a different organization. Um, and it's, you know, when you're working a lot of hours, it is nice to kind of have that safe space where you can just be alone. Sure. But with that said, tangibly, one of, one of the things that has 100% been lost is just a long-form face-to-face conversation. Hmm. And if I'm being honest, one of, first of all, here's my philosophy, is in your 30-year career, you spend, if you're doing it right, you spend the first 20 years getting up to speed and learning everything you can. And then the last 10 years, or whatever your backside is, you continue with that progress but you now have the responsibility of passing all that down. You, you, you go into a coaching and mentoring style. Um, so if we've lost that face-to-face conversation, long form at the table um, or in the apparatus bay, we've lost the ability to pass down some of those skill sets, some of that experience, some of those nuggets, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, and it's a it. I I mean I agree a hundred percent. I th- one of the challenges to that is, you know, there was an era there was an era of training where a lot of the hands-on skills, the basics that were necessary to do this job, weren't really being addressed at all, and. That's one of the best parts about what's going on at training right now. And a lot of the members that I've talked to that are in that 20-year mark and are high-performing individuals, they sort of came to a point early on where they were having a great time on the job. I mean, how could you not? This is just an incredible place to work. And we've got, we're, you know, we're well-funded. We've got great equipment. We've got nice rigs. Um, The the stations are super nice. Um, We're... We're not, uh, we're pretty open with what we can do with our time, you know, so getting exercise and, you know, playing ball in the morning and all that stuff. I mean, Stensgaard talked about the era of Halo, et cetera. And it's for a lot of these guys, it was, you know, these members, it was the missing component was operating at fires and they would be at a fire and, you know, several of the people I've talked to like had a moment or a series of moments where, they could not operate in the way that they wanted to. They reached a roadblock with what they felt like was a very basic skill. Fook talked about trying to force an outward swinging door, metal on metal, mm-hmm. set in masonry, and yeah. they couldn't do it. Yeah. With the tools he was told, 
that he could do it with. And, but was never shown, this is how you actually do it. And so, you know, in my mind, one of those foundational skills is forcible entry, which yeah. was more or less non-existent, um, at, at least for a long period of time right. until, you know, several members, Cody, Fook, and these guys brought it back, reintroduced it to our organization, or maybe introduced it for the first time. You know, Brax brought up the point that we literally had a tool called the Portland door opener that sort of like faded away and kind of disappeared off the rigs for a yeah. while. Um, and so what that creates is a, is a group of members or a, a generation of membership where unless they, unless they retrained themselves or went out to an outside organization like FDIC or conferences or kind of came to a point and said, I got to figure this out. I got to know the basics if I want to continue being able to operate it like or operate at a high level at all. Um, and those that for whatever reason didn't take that opportunity or have that realization. Now you've got senior members that are on the job 15 to 25 or more years yeah. that don't know the basics yeah. and they're in a really tough position Yeah, that they know that they don't know the basics. Yeah. And it, again, with the way that our staffing model works, it's easy to silo yourself yeah. into these places. And then, when the expectation is that if a new member comes in and they've got all these questions, it, yeah. it's not, it, it, they're in a very tough position. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And, um, I, I couldn't agree more, you know, let me, that's a lot to unpack there, brother. I mean, that that's, <laughs> yeah, let that's me, why we're here. Let yeah. me jump in. Please. So y y you want to think, you want to think of the fire service as a vehicle, right? The, you have an engine, you have a transmission, you have brakes, you have a, a cooling system, you have the interior. So they're all important, right? Like if the transmission is training, if the, the engine is your, your personnel, you know, we can talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's that's your breaks. It is important to mirror the community mm -hmm. and to have your community trust you. Um, there, there's all these components to the fire service, and training is one of the big ones, right? So, like yes. everything in life, you have to be balanced, okay? So, if I put all my eggs in the diversity, equity, inclusion, and I get the best breaks money can buy, and I, I put, you know, I don't know shit about vehicles, I know you do, is there a cooling system for brakes? <laughs> Whatever there is out there, like you've got the absolute best um, brakes on the market, and you could stop on a dime. But along that, along the way, you didn't change the oil, you didn't change the air filter, it's been 100,000 miles since you flushed the transmission. Yeah. You've got a car that probably is not as efficient and effective as it should be. So when we talk about training, how upfront we have all this great training, it's a year. It's almost, it's almost a year. I know there's been a little bit of reduction in that as of recently, but I think our training is outstanding, um, as do you. But then we roll out and the incumbent training and the training blocks, it's not stellar. There's room for improvement. 
and I'm not here to point blame, but let me just state the facts. There's a lot to appreciate and, and a lot to be disappointed in with City of Portland. And we, we've just had budget cuts and the holy grail to us has always been the golden goose is we are not going to skimp on operations four person companies frontline apparatus stations like we are going to front end load this thing when we show up we are loaded for bear yeah okay but we had to make some cuts so we did so on the back side of staffing staff positions administrative support all that sort of thing so we are this is my opinion we are not a progressive department because we don't have the horsepower to do so. Like, look at anything, whether it's CrewSense, ProQA, Image Trend, all these changes that we've made, it's additional workload. Yeah. Someone, whether it's a deputy chief or the EMS chief or the, the poor suckers at battalion headquarters, they're the ones that are doing program management. Yeah. So here we are, right? right? Yeah. Um, so just a little bit of backstory cause and effect. But with that said, if you're a professional firefighter, what you are is a problem solver and you have to be resilient. So if we're in this era where the incumbents are not getting great training, you got to create a culture where you guys are training. Like we're, we're in the internet age. Yeah. Yeah, I could go, I could pull up right now and, and Joseph, hey, uh, man, we had such a great time doing our podcast. I want to go to a conference, a firefighter conference every month with you and we'll fly around the country and I'll pay for the whole thing. I just want to grow. I want you and I to grow as professionals yeah. and we could do that. Yeah. Is it going to cost us money? Is it going to cost us time? Bureau's not paying for it. City's not paying for it. But that's how you supplement, right? Yeah. Like that's how you problem solve, in my opinion. If you don't have the time, you're, you know, you have young kids, or, um, you know, you have parents that are aging, and and you've brought them into your house, and you're you're caring for aging parents, whatever it may be. No problem. You're that's the chapter you're in. You need to maximize your time when you're on duty. Right. Okay. I I don't remember a TV show from a year ago or 10 years ago. I've never watched a show that's changed my life. Yeah. I've had conversations that have changed my life. I've had um, trainings that to this day resonate with me um, and or I've used them on the fire ground. Um, so you, you just have to maximize your time. Yeah. Right? Yes. It's, I'm not advocating that, hey, let's, let's first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna get a case of Red Bull and we're gonna sleep four hours and we're gonna train. 17 hours a day and that's how it's incredible you have to strike a balance but yeah. here's the good news it's a 30 year career 25 to 30 years so you know one of your questions you, you gave me was what do you do every day i do self-improvement every day i work on this body i work on this mind and i work on whatever rank i'm at whatever is expected of me right now i'm a battalion chief so uh, I got to keep people safe. I got to know my shit when I yeah. show up, when to push, when to relent, when to regroup. That's what I do. I do those three things every single day. And I have for probably 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously there's a lot there. And that's why you're sitting in this seat 
to hear about that because obviously you're somebody that's all in. When we talk about all in, I mean, that's, that's what it is. It's body, mind, and, um, and tactics. And the, I mean, in terms of training, I, I mean, the last, I mean, do you remember the last bureau wide, aside from skid truck, which has come up before, yeah, but like yeah. aside from skid truck, the last bureau wide fire suppression training that this organization has put on. And, and again, I'm not in the same way that you yeah. are. I, I'd like to, you know, mirror that by saying like, we're not here to disparage yeah. a, a division, yep. uh, a group, a, a work group, an individual in any way. Yeah. Um, and obviously the membership uh, in this era of, you know, fentanyl and COVID, and you can blame it on all kinds of different things. Yeah. Um, but without a organizational expectation of a little incremental improvement every day, you know, supported by periodic bureau-wide training, yeah. uh, all of this high-speed, low-drag training that these members are getting when they first come in the door for that yeah. first year, I mean, just like you said, it's that bicycle will coast to a stop unless somebody's pedaling it. Yeah. And the expectation that members are going to train on their own is fine. But unless they're getting the information that they're getting at station two, the improvement won't be there. We're just going to keep doing the same old things that we've always been doing. Yeah. Yeah. I I share your frustrations. Let me cover cover a couple different points. What a compliment. I'm all in. That's a giant compliment. Let's talk about what it means to not be all in. So here's a question that everyone asking, excuse me, everyone listening should ask themselves. My house is on fire. It's 3 a.m. My family is trapped. Do I put myself on that first arriving apparatus? If you're a BC, are you the chief that you want to run that fire? And if the answer is no, you've got some work to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's what the community expects of us. Yeah. Yeah. This job this I mean, Brack said it. It's like we call it the job. I'm on the job. How long have you been on the job? Yeah. Working the job. But yeah. I love the way that he put it. He says, I, I, I say the job, but I think of it in capital letters. Yeah. This is the job. Yeah. This is the only job. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it plays for keeps. If you're not prepared to make that, uh, to prioritize the mission and them and then me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there. Our title is firefighters. We fight. We're not accountants doing numbers. We're not... Uh, chefs making delicious meals. We're not mechanics, you know, fixing vehicles and, and keep, keeping people's lives running. Like, you have to be prepared for a fight, physically, mentally, trained. I mean, let's be honest. When I talk about we show up and we're loaded for bear, well, here I am, and what I do now is get a front row seat to every incident, well, about half the incidents in the city, right? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a professional observer of one of the hats that I wear. The companies that are not training, the companies that I show up and they just want to talk about dumb shit this and horses ass that, those guys are underperforming, okay? And for me, 
we talk about my preparation, I'm a play caller, right? And I don't just blindly call plays. Like I'm a student of the game. I understand construction, fire behavior. I can read smoke. I understand what is um, a reasonable timeline for my orders to be implemented, i.e. how long does it take you to lay in? How long does it take you to stretch, et cetera? But if you come to that fight and you're not prepared, you're an impediment to progress. And progress sometimes means people lose their lives and or their property. And that could easily be us. Like, we're very lucky. You know how many close calls we've had, Joseph, in the last three or four years? I cannot count them with all my toes and fingers. And if you think that we are going to continue to go through this era um, and have this many incidents and not have a tragedy among us, you're crazy. Yeah. But to get back to the training, sorry, I'm all, how's this for an abstract painting all over the map? But to get back to training, yeah, I mean, my question to those companies and yourself that, that are frustrated out there is, again, let me back up. This is what you have to have to be successful in Portland Fire and Rescue. You have to have passion. You have to have progress. And you have to have grit. You have to have passion for the job. You care about your brothers. You care about the community. You care about having your equipment dialed, looking good, ready to roll, right? Like you're the best. If, if you don't have a swagger in the fire service, you're missing out on an incredible opportunity. Not an arrogance, but a confidence, meaning I've put the time in and I'm ready to rock. And I know a career fire could come 10 days from now or it could come 10 minutes from now and I'm ready to rock because I put the time in. The progress is, this is my path, but I have treated this organization like it's an apprenticeship. Like if you look at my transfers, I've been all over the place because I want to grow I want to surround myself with excellent people and I want to be out of my comfort zone as much as possible. Because when I'm out of my comfort zone or I'm in a new FMA or now I'm on the truck or now I'm a lieutenant leading a crew, I get up to speed, right? Because of my passion, because of my allegiance to the organization and because of the oath I took, right? Um, And then the last one is grit. Man, there's some fucked up shit in this city, in politics, in leadership, in homelessness. Like you have to have grit to get through that. And that doesn't mean you're just a badass and none of that. Sometimes having grit means that you reach out to a peer support member or you, you go and get some counseling because you need help or you acknowledge that maybe you have a substance abuse problem or you recognize that, you know what? I think I treat my family like shit. Yeah. And that can happen. That's all fog of war stuff. Um, but grit means that you are constantly aware of your strengths and your weaknesses. And when the going gets g- tough, you can get through. And you don't wish yourself into grit. You should. You should create a lifestyle, both on duty and off duty, where you do hard stuff, right? You yes. should work out hard. You should do cold plunge. You should have 
tough conversations, not in a, uh, you know, in a divisive or angry way. Like you want to, you want to dip your toes into a hard conversation. Go ask your wife, go ask your spouse, say, Hey, this is a safe place. Kids are gone. We've got an hour, but I I just need to hear it from you. When I come home, am I the person that you want to be with? Is, is my attitude or my anger or my, you know, temper, is this sustainable to you? Like, are we maximizing our marriage? Just ask her that and then shut your mouth and listen. I don't care if you're, you know, doing 600 calls a year at your station or 4,000. Just shut your mouth and listen, right? Because there's always room to grow. And by the way, we got to hug our families, right? Because we'll get back to firefighting and that's what I'm passionate about. But you have to have the framework. Like if you're trying to come to work and you have instability at home, you're not going to make it. You're just not. You can't have a broken relationship at home or substance abuse or anger problems and come to work and be whole. Um, this It's tough to be a spouse to a firefighter that's work doing shift work. Like you're in and out of their lives. And what do we do? We go to this paramilitary ins, you know, institution and everyone knows their job and everything's in order. And you know, there's this hierarchy, um, you, you know, just the chain of command, et cetera. And then we go home and largely it's nothing like that. And for me personally, I don't know about the rest of us out there, but I have a hard time transitioning. And the more sleep deprivation that I put myself or subject myself to, the harder it is to transition. So what I'm saying is I don't have the answers, and this is probably a 10-hour podcast, but but let me just close with this when it comes to families. Man, you got to hug your families. And the first thing you should do is... Take a few moments to think about the areas that you've come up short and go make that confession to your kids, to your spouse, to your parents, whoever it may be. And I think you'd be surprised what doors open up for you. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that we harden ourselves to the experience at work and then the challenges that we face at home, our, our spouses are doing the same thing. Right. Our wives and girls are doing the same thing. They're hardening themselves to the trauma of whatever they're going to, uh, whatever's going to walk through the door. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you, I mean, for us, do you want someone on your engine company or truck company or squad that's bipolar? That's what we are to our spouses. Yeah. I don't know if that's 5% or 50%, but that's what this job does to us. So... Back to like grit and resilience, you got to work through that. And, and you probably don't want to knock on my door because I can tell you a little bit, but there, there are professionals out there. There are books. But mo- sometimes you just, you just got to have that conversation, admit that you're yeah. not whole yeah. and there's room for improvement and that this job does have a price, Joseph. Yeah. It has a price. Yeah, we last year we had a member at once go to the Center of Excellence, and one of the things that was so powerful about that experience was that he wanted 
everybody else to know that he was going and what he was going through. He didn't necessarily have the energy to tell everybody himself, yeah. but he wanted everybody to know. It's yeah. like, I don't want it to be a secret. I want everybody to know. I want to bring in um, our uh, mental health professional from the training division to come in and sit down on shift with my crew, with me, with my counselor, and yeah. talk about the whole thing. Yeah. This is what it's like for me to go through this moment, yeah. knowing that every time someone yeah. does that, it makes space for everybody else. Yeah. It makes room for everybody else. I mean, there's no, in the same way that like, hey, I don't, like, can you show me how the ads are supposed to go into the jam? Yeah. It's like, if you have that question, every, there are, <laughs> it's guaranteed that there are 50 other people have the same exact question. Yeah. Same deal. If you're going through that, there are, I mean, it's, it's wild when you start, when you start getting in that loop, how many people are getting out there and getting help. Yeah. And what, I mean, what's a more powerful sign of strength than saying that you need help? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the opposite of the, um, it's the opposite of, of, of what we think it would be that yeah. as soon as I, all right, well, I don't need to be a burden. You know, I'm here to solve problems. I'm here yeah. to be resilient. I'm here to be tough. I'm here to be progressive. Um, and, and just like you said, sometimes that is taking the form of saying like, I, I, I mean, I just had, there was a guy that texted me the other day. We were supposed to do a drill at the station yeah. together. And he texted me the night before and said, Hey, I'm not going to be able to make it in tomorrow. I got family stuff going on. I'm just, I'm tired. Yeah. And I mean, the response that I had for him was like, Hey, I mean, sometimes being a good fireman is yeah. knowing when to stay home. That's right. Well said. I mean, it, 100%. and, and, and I mean, good on him. I mean, it was just, I was just trying to reflect back what he was telling me, Yeah. but it's so, it's, it's such a incremental change yeah. over time that it's so hard to see, right? Like the frog getting boiled in water. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, we, we leave the United States. We're in a ship. We're gonna we're going to Hawaii, man. We're going on vacation. We're gonna sail this boat, and we've got our heading. And if we come off of that heading just a little bit, and we don't course correct that heading, and yeah. the amount of miss, um, and how far off we we are from reaching the Hawaiian Islands and paradise. It just grows and it grows and it grows yeah. and it grows. Um, so let, let's let's bring the two together. Let's talk about metacognition, right? So let's start. Let's, let's talk about our squirrel brain a little bit. Um, so these emotions start in whatever it is: fear, anger, love, lust. It all starts in the limbic system, right? That's yes. Your emotions, your cravings, your desires. Whatever we're feeling, and and I want to talk about you know transition away from you know just some of the the hardships and behavioral health issues and marry the two together, dude. I'm here to tell you when I wake up, particularly like in the first year as a BC, when the tones went off in the middle of the night, I was certain that every single fire that I was responding to was going to be a career fire and there was going to be a mayday and it was going to be an orphanage on fire and we were going to have 150 uh, difficulty breathing patients that got drug out. So I would jump in the rig, Joseph, and I got, 
you, you, I couldn't even spell my name. Yeah. Like I was so overcome emotionally and I just had to figure out, dude, I'm going to get someone killed, man. I, I got to figure this out. This is not me. I put the time in. I should be confident. Why am I overwhelmed? How, how, how do I process these emotions behind me? And along the way, um, you know, I realized that metacognition, okay? The limbic system takes in your emotions, your cravings, and your desires. And we have to move that, um, that information, that processing to the prefrontal cortex, which is where we process, plan, and decide. And here's how you do that. You count to 10 out loud. If 10 doesn't do it, you count to 20 out loud. If you're having an argument with your, your spouse, you take a time out, you go outside, and as you're walking down the street, you cite all the things you remember about the day you got married. You, you cite your kid's birthday. You cite out loud everything you love about your wife. And what you're doing is you're processing all those emotions and whether you write it down or you say it verbally you're transitioning those emotions to your free prefrontal cortexes which is where you process and plan yep the same is true for um responding to emergencies when you're overwhelmed so how did i get out of that hole i just in route you know i developed i i didn't leave until i looked at a sat map so i knew exactly what the structure was is it a flat roof does it have a heavy load is it residential fire is it you know it's a windy day or it's in august and you know it's a fence fire extended to a house how what's what's the exposures how close are we to the other ones i'd identify my closest water supply then i would go and then in route i would just buzz through my stuff c4s arrive offensive fire water supply backup line primary you know, fire attack first floor, fire attack second floor, 360, second alarm. Like, I'm just basically citing things that are on the incident command board. And what did I do? I threw all those emotions right back to where I can process. And I showed up, and I was good to go. And it sounds simple, but additionally, you just need to know who you are. Like, like for me, um, I did all sports. I did football, little guy doing football, not a good fit. Um, <laughs> baseball, little guy doing baseball, just didn't have the skill set. But wrestling, oh, I found out well, there's weight classes. Doesn't matter if I, mm. you know, am 122 pounds as a freshman. And there's incredible wrestlers in this organization, like studs. So this isn't about me being a great wrestler, and I was middle of the road. Um, but what I learned throughout my 12 years of wrestling is, man, I always had anxiety. And I would talk myself into losing for the dumbest shit. Yeah. Oh, that guy's got brand new ASICs. Oh, you don't have brand new ASICs unless you're like a freestyle wrestler, your dad's a coach. Yeah. Oh, look at, oh no, look at that guy. He's, he's short and muscular. Like there's no way I can bring him down. He's just too strong. Conversely that, oh, look at that, that guy's six foot two. He's a fish. He's going to be able to reach, outreach me and do an ankle pick on me. And there's, there's nothing I can do. And I just got myself in this headspace where I had already justified defeat, right? 
And the same can be true for the fire ground. Like if, if you allow yourself to get overwhelmed and like, I'm not going to dominate this fire. I'm just going to try and survive this fire. And, and, and I'm overwhelmed and I'm not sharp. And I recognize I haven't done the preparation. Yes. That stuff can consume you. And, and it, it can impact your ability to be efficient and effective. Right. There were some guys I wrestled. I couldn't beat them on my best day. Um, there are some fires that we're going to get our ass kicked. It's going to burn up two houses or we're going to, we're going to go defensive. Like there's some fires we can't win. That's just the way it is. Um, but getting back to my point, what I learned about myself is if I just jumped into the fray and didn't worry about anything, I was, I could figure it out. I was good to go. Like all that anxiety went to the back seat. Yep. Right. Same with this interview. I mean, yeah, I know we're having a conversation probably in front of a couple hundred people and I was anxious about it. You know, yeah. I just, there's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Um, but here we are. And yeah. I think we're both doing a great job, you yeah. know, just feeling comfortable. It's a conversation. We're just, we're just running with it. So right. again, back to my point in summary, all those emotions, like that's a good thing. Fear is because we used to be chased and eaten by bear. Like yes. you want all that, but you want to quickly turn it into process because now that's situational awareness. All your emotions, that's a good chunk of situational awareness. And now we want to process the situation, right? Yeah. Um, but put, put, your own, put your own fingerprints on it. Like you got to know you. And what works for me maybe doesn't work for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's by far um, the missing part of our training. It is we we've all been uh, we've all had the experience that you're describing at every level, whether it's a small thing. I mean, the consequence of this interview. <laughs> I mean, compared to uh, taking incident command at uh, a fire like Twin Parks Northwest in New York City, South Bronx in January of 22, right? Yeah. But they elicit the same response. They elicit the same fear response, the same parasympathetic, uh, parasympathetic nervous system response, right? Yeah. And we, our brain, I mean, we've got to be the only species that can sit in a chair and think about something and elicit the exact same physical, physiological response as a saber-toothed tiger chasing you through the woods. Yeah. I mean, we've got to be the only animal. <laughs> <laughs> on this green earth yeah. that can do that. And we do it yeah. every day, repeatedly, yeah. all the time for all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And just like you said, knowing, even being aware that it's happening, even being aware that it's happening is the very beginning of figuring out how to solve that problem. Everybody, I mean, I'm glad that you brought this up. This is a huge part of what we're talking about. And a person that we've brought up a number of times in these conversations is Jason Bresler, the founder of Leadership Under Fire. He was a Rescue 2 firefighter in New York City, and then he's now a lieutenant, I believe, on Rescue 2. But he founded a company called Leadership Under Fire um, in 2012 as a response to experiences that he had as a uh, combat marine leader, as a major in F uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Served in Fallujah in 2006 and came home and said, we have got to do everything different. The battle space that they prepared for tactically uh, was not what they encountered when they arrived. And what ended up happening is that he found himself so destabilized and his men and the concern for their safety that rather than carry out the mission, he became extremely risk averse 
much more so than he is naturally in any setting. I mean, he was on rescue too in New York. Yeah. And he found himself in these situations where he didn't understand what was going on, couldn't process the information that was in front of him, and then totally abandoned the mission yeah. and focused more on staying alive every day. Yeah. How do we stay alive every day and still, quote unquote, operate in this battle space? Yeah. Came home, said, this is ridiculous. We have to, um, I mean, he, when he went over there, he talks about, uh, he says, the three keys to mission success operating in uh, Afghanistan in 2006 would be, collect, uh, would be tactics, tactical training, if we have good equipment and weaponry, and if we have technology, we'll be successful. He comes home and he says, collective will, mindset, and relationships yeah. are the key to success. Yeah. And, I mean, what that has to do with fire rigs or hose or yeah. hydrants is I chainsaws, nothing, absolutely yeah. nothing. Yeah. Sheridan, when he was sitting in that hair chair, he talked about his experiences after 9-11 and watching USAR teams conglomerate on the pile from all over the world. Mm. He talks about well-funded, quote-unquote, high-speed teams from all over the United States showing up with truckfuls of equipment very well-funded, very highly trained individuals who spent days setting up communication systems where a team from Mexico City showed up and with a like half-frayed torn piece of old rope and he watched a dude with a do-rag on his head, put a knife in his teeth and jumped in a hole yeah. and searched and, and checked void spaces. Yeah. I mean, that has everything to do with collective will, mindset and relationships and absolutely nothing to do with yeah. tactics, yeah. right? And technology. Yeah. And... So how do we get there from here? Yeah. I mean, we have to have some sort of mental performance training where we are put in challenging situations that are not actual threats. We yeah. listen to our bodies and we figure out what works. Yeah. I mean, Andrew Huberman, who has an absolutely outstanding podcast that I would encourage everybody to look at or listen to, um, especially the early ones. He talks about the basics of human physiology um, is a, a, a physician on there named Dr. Jack Feldman that is a, is a pioneer in breathing, just breathing, something we do uh, all the time, whether we're thinking about it or not. And the, and the power of just taking a slow breath in for a four count, holding it for four and letting it out for four, a 100% game changer. Nice. Being able to, what, like what you're talking about, like you feel yourself getting physiologically aroused, you take a step back, you get your eyes up, you detach from the situation for a second. Yep. Is this a threat or is this a challenge? Yeah. Is this a threat or is this a challenge? Am I being attacked or am I about to go to work? Yeah. And if I'm about to go to work, well, that's easy. But just like you said, we move that experience into our prefrontal cortex. We generate a little bit of positive self-talk. We say, hey, I'm prepared for this challenge because this is not a threat. I'm prepared because I am tactically sound. I know my shit. And it's something that I've thought about and I've practiced and I've got the best team. I've got the best equipment. I've got a good IC and we're going to go to work. We are expecting fire every time we come to work. We are expecting victims. We are expecting problems and we're expecting solutions. Yeah. We show up at 921 Southwest 21st in front of the Portland Towers on March 20th, 1151 p.m., two weeks into the pandemic lockdown. Everybody's home, and there's fire blowing out the eighth floor of the alpha side of the building. 
no big deal. We expect fire. We expect fire to be blowing out of that window. It tried to kill one of our guys in 1990. Yeah. And if we have that mindset, if we take that mindset of being ready to perform, because that's where we're expecting what we're going to be doing that shift as we're driving to work. And if we've prepared ourselves mentally, knowing what our body does when it starts getting stressed out and how we keep it from getting to the point where we can't spell our own name, yeah. then that's how we operate. I mean, all of our doctrine, all of our doctrine that we have, our operational guidelines, our general orders, our target solutions videos, uh, all of these things um, depend on something. They're based on a false premise, which is that human beings will operate consistently given a set of circumstances and tactics. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, arguably, uh, differences in mental performance are even uh, greater than physical differences, especially at the highest levels. The way that we're going to respond to different stimuli are, um, there, uh, there are as many different possibilities as there are people. And all of our doctrine depends on that human behavior is going to be consistent. And yeah. that when the stakes are higher, we're going to perform at a higher level. <laughs> I mean, what sense does that make in any way? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. So just like you said, um, this is... This is the foundation of operational performance, is understanding what your mind and your body are doing. And um, when Sheridan was the driving instructor, largely his effort, apart from his primary job, was to develop um, some sort of mental high-performance high training regime for Portland Fire and Rescue, and, and, and that will happen. That will happen. He's gone back to Station 25, and he is, you know, he has a handful of years left to work here yeah. um, but that will happen because we can't ignore it any longer yeah robbie Hendricks is doing a firefighter uh, survival component of station two training yeah and um that's the missing link that's the missing link that we we haven't addressed and i think for those those tenured members who um are uncertain or who having those that physical response going to a fire when it's tapped out yeah. and they're talking themselves into being beaten, just yeah. like you experienced on the wrestling mat. Uh, I think that that is a huge component in gaining that confidence along with tactical training so that they know they can perform when they show up on the fire ground yeah. rather than just trying to avoid risk. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, you're spot on. And my response to that is what you're demonstrating is we have great people in this organization. So if, if I get a field promotion and I'm the operations chief tomorrow, that's what I want. I want proposals that have no stone unturned, that show a, a deficiency and a plan moving forward. And then I go, I invest in those people. Yes. That's easier said than done, and I've never been beyond this rank, but that's what you do. That's delegation. That's empowerment. Like, you, you know, go read the book. Um, it's your ship, right? Like, if you're if if leadership just walks around thinking they know everything, they've got a giant set of blinders on. If you want to know what the problems are and where the holes are and where the you know Gordon Graham says it's all predictable behavior and outcome, go ask the firefighter right yes so so that's what you do you 
you overcome that and you by empowering your people and implementing those plans and you get behind it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So, yeah. how when you talk about when you talk about, you know, Oh, sorry, can I say one? I want to get this story out. Let me, uh, please do. Uh, so along those lines, like, if you think you're the smartest guy in the room, you're an idiot. I don't care what rank it is. You're just an idiot. As well as you probably lack the awareness that you're in the fire service, man. We're not curing cancer. We're not building, you know, space stations. A lot of what we do is pretty mundane. We're cleaning toilets, maintaining equipment, etc. So um, it's just important that we have a humble approach as an organization and just recognize that everyone brings something to the table. And conversely to that, you know, we, I do want to talk about leadership and the pandemic and social unrest. But let me just say this, like, if you're around bad leadership and you have the right attitude, you're growing because you just witnessed, mm. hey, this is what you don't do. And here's why. And here's the outcome to a bad decision. Like, that's an opportunity to grow. Yeah, for sure. Really? That, and that's under which suitcase? Resiliency, right? And grit. Um, but yeah, back to the you story. Um, so yeah, you, you guys had a great class and I was attacking instructor for you. And, um, what I remember about you is, uh, you failed a, a test. You failed an academic test once. And in the process of failing that academic test, like you had these almost Tourette's like outbursts, like, oh, yeah. damn it shit i knew it and you know it was just me and the class and we're out in the portable and and i asked you to stay after right yep. and i knew you at the like this was like we'd been together for months like i knew this was the TAC final or this was the trainee final oh was I, it? I, I remember it like it happened this morning okay yeah. anyway yeah um, it was the trainee final so it, it, and i'm here's my here's my point i, I kept you behind and I said, hey, Joseph, I'm pretty sure you're the smartest guy in the room, including me. And you have no concerns about washing out of this program academically. But moving forward, what you have to have is you have to have that emotional discipline because you're going to be on some fire grounds where things don't go well or where there's, you know, family members that are on the sidewalk and their their loved ones just perished in a fire, etc. Um, but I guess my point was, this wasn't as funny as I had thought it was going to be, but um, like you, you recognize greatness. Like I, I could see, and there's a, there's, you know, there was a lot of people that were top shelf in your class, but the future of from a leadership perspective, if we're frustrated about leadership or maybe the last five years didn't go as planned, I'm here to tell you that the future chiefs of this organization, they're sitting across the table from you. They're eating dinner with you. They're responding with you. That You're immersing them in your culture, right, wrong, or indifferent. So we want to recognize people that have the 
pedigree, if you will, maybe that's wrong, or, 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 or just the skill set to, to move forward. And that's not to minimize firefighters. Like, they're the backbone of what we do. The, the greatest incident commanders are two pieces of bread and a piece of shit. If they don't have great firefighters, it's a shit sandwich. It's what it is. So you have to have great firefighters. But getting back to my point, like, we have to groom and encourage people that are going to take over this organization for the right reasons. Because they're of high character, because they're plugged in, they understand the urgency to lead, to train, to stay sharp, to recognize that we have, you know, deficiencies in, in our, you know, me- mental yes. training and re- resiliency, et cetera. So we can talk about a one-year plan, but don't forget about the 10 and 20-year plan, right? Like this is our organization. We can make it better. Yes. Yeah, without a doubt. I appreciate you bringing up that story because that was absolutely, I mean, I, I think about that moment all the time. I mean, I, by nature, I have a pretty... <laughs> I have a pretty strong inner critic voice, and I think it's just a part of my personality. And I've learned to compartmentalize it, you know, and know when it's, for the most part, know when it's being too loud. But um, I had completely, was completely emotionally overwhelmed in that moment for something that was, if I could have detached or zoomed out, would have, you know, one of the most inconsequential things that would have happened in my fire service career, right? And the reminder of a senior firefighter saying, look, yeah, this is important to you in this moment, but it is only important because you care about it. It has no bearing on anything else. There's no significance of this moment in in any way other than your the way that you're reacting to it. And on the fire ground, this is the opposite of what we need to do as professionals. And that's something that's really stuck with me. And speaks to, you know, something that we'll talk about some more, but just having those tougher conversations, but the responsibility of being that senior firefighter. I mean, it was an explicit relationship at the moment, right? That you were a TAC trainer and I was a TAC recruit and it was time to have that conversation. But how those roles and responsibilities of those senior firefighters, um, how, how infinitely important it is and how each one of those moments you are setting an example and a pattern for how those firefighters are going to conduct themselves in the station and on the fire ground for the rest of their careers, and then how other members are going to learn from them and going to learn from them. Uh, Brax talked about Bruliet yelling at him that he didn't know how to use a hammer when they were building the inside of the building out the TAC locker room. Yeah. He said, are you freaking kidding me? You don't know how to use a hammer, Brax? What's the matter with you? And he says, yeah. well, I... I I don't know. You're right. And then he'd hang back and he'd watch and see how other people are using the hammer. And so when he has that experience with tack recruits that are coming through and doing the truck ops, especially in vent, when you're doing a million nails, it's like, yeah. hey, take you aside. Hey, this is how you use this thing. This yeah. is how you use this basic tool. Yeah. Because if you learn, if you have that training scar of I'm not going to ask a question when I want to know something that I know I should probably know yeah. as an adult in the world. Yeah. Uh, than what happens when it's when somebody hands you a chainsaw, yeah, right, or right. hands you the keys to the rig. Yeah. You're now wearing a red helmet, yeah, and you can't ask those questions. Yeah. Then you go through an entire career not knowing what you know you don't know and should know, yeah, to get the job done. But those patterns are set when you're a firefighter. 
Yeah. Those patterns are set from day one when you're interacting with those senior members yeah. about how we do business here. Because you show up in any group, we're just doing what we do. This is how we're doing it. When you showed up at Coeur d'Alene, when you showed up at District 8, yeah. he's like, well, oh, this is what we're doing. Oh, we don't wash the rigs. Oh, I guess we don't wash the rigs. You show up at another place, yeah, we wash the rigs. We make sure our stuff is tight that's and right. it's not rusty. Yeah. You're like, well, oh, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Hey, we, we make fun of our new guys for not knowing anything. Yeah. And then not teach them. Yeah. Oh, I guess that's what we're doing. Yeah. Hey, when they come through the door, that's our guy. This is our new member and we put our arm around them yeah. and we make fun of them for yeah. their weird ears and then we show them how to do their job. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, brother. Preach on. And, you know, life is just a process, man. You just have all these different chapters and different awarenesses and experiences. And, you know, I'm 48. I'm almost 50. And I just feel like my awareness my maturity and my understanding is infinitely higher than when I was in my 20s. It just is. And I'm sure that's true for everyone, unless you're a giant jackass. Um, but with that said, to, to parallel or echo your point, one of the biggest gaffes for Portland Fire and Rescue is... The failure to recognize that we are a version of the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts. Meaning, we take young and impressionable people and we show them skills, we teach them character, principles, values, and we set them up for success. And then moving forward, those people cycle through and then they become the instructors. And, and when you have this synergy, you, you, you have this culture of excellence. And we're failing that, you know? I mean, that's a little strong. We, we're not maximizing. Yeah. Let me put it that way. Like, we, we don't, everything you just unpacked, you, you're right, man. We, we need to immerse people in, in the best culture, right? Um, Culture of character, culture of accountability, culture of resilience, culture of training, culture of caring about the community, um, it, all that, right? And back back to me and, and my belief that, or, or just my process, that Portland Fire and Rescue has been a journeyman uh, assignment for me. Like, if you're out there and you're not in a positive culture... You should either try and change that culture or you should move on. Yeah. Because this job is so fleeting. It is. It's, I've got 23 years in just with Portland. I'm on the back slope, man. And it, it's a little sad. You know, I'm going to, I love the fire service and, and, you know, there's still a lot for me to do. Um, but I'm definitely looking to pass it on. With that said, like, you don't want to waste a moment in a shitty culture. You just don't. Because you'll always play down to the level of your opponent. So if you're in a culture where you sit around at roll call and and the new policies get two minutes, but complaining about leadership gets 20 minutes, you're in a bad culture. 
And it's unlikely that you're going to maximize your growth. It's, yeah. it's just it. That's just the facts. You go to West Point. Shout out to coffee. Yeah, shout out to coffee. Like, you're, you're just going to grow infinitely, right? Because you're surrounded by excellence and you're in an institution that will get the most out of you. Yeah. Because they're investing in you. Um. So uh, I just want to throw that out there. And, and th that's not a slight, you know, like a, a guy like Pete Straub that's been at Station 14 for 30 years. He's as good as it gets. That guy, an address comes in, he can tell you what color that house is. He's a 10. So I, I'm not saying that if you're at the same house um, for 10 or 20 years, you're making a mistake. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying if, if you're not putting yourself out of your comfort zone or you're in a bad culture, you need to consider moving on or affecting change in that culture. Yeah. Back to my point about, you know, we talked about progress, grit. Um, you have to have progress. This career will get boring. Like if you just sit and you do the same thing over, you're on the same apparatus, you're, you know, you're not really growing professionally you're not going to get the most out of your career. You should try and work on a truck. You should go to a busy company. You should try and get to a quint. You should try and get to a specialty. If you want to stay at your assignment, you should try taking a leading role um, in training and put on some, some weekly or monthly training. And it doesn't have to be fire service related. Like we have professional kitchens, like they're industrial yeah. kitchens. like. You should say, hey, I'm going to be the permanent cook for three months, and I'm going to learn how to cook. And then you should say, hey, I'm going to put on 10 pounds of muscle in the next six months, and you should work out like a madman. Like, you have to keep going. You have to have progress if you want to be fulfilled. You have to set goals and achieve goals. Yeah. That's how you do it. And back to your, you know, Back talking about your test failure, like you want to have failure. The the largest growth professionally and personally that you can have is often failure, right? Yeah, without a doubt. I yeah. don't remember any other test. I mean, it's the only yeah. test I remember taking ever. Yeah. You you want to have failure, and back back to the culture side of failing. Man, when I was finding my way as a lieutenant and a captain. If I fucked up something on the fire, I could not wait to get to the tailboard and tell those guys, hey, fellas, here's what I did wrong. Here's what I should have done. And looked them all in the eye and said, and you can expect better of me moving forward. And what did that do? I was accountable. I cleansed my soul. I was honest about my shortcomings. But more so, what did I do for that crew? I just created a culture where, yes. hey, not only learn from my mistake, but this is a safe space to talk about where, where you came up short. Yeah, without you know, a doubt. That, that is so important, Joseph. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't work 30 years and not make mistakes. Of, of course. I mean, and really, they're only mistakes, like Brack says, if they're only mistakes if you keep making them. That's right. The first time you do it, it's just a training opportunity. Yeah. It's a time for growth. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Um, can, I, can I ramble on for one more... Uh, Take the wheel. Okay. I want to talk about perspective, right? And some of the challenges that are associated with Portland Fire and Rescue, we've talked about how, um, you know, we're going to continue to have 
um, investment or budgetary challenges. There's an article in the Willamette Week that just came out um, where our commissioner, Gonzalez, kind of tipped his hand that his plan is to move forward with the bond where um, the Fire Bureau would have $200 million. I think it's over five years. But bond money can only be spent on um, facilities, right? Like it's capital spending. New roof, new fire station, new training, new logistics, all that stuff would be great. It'd be fantastic. Um, but then buy a new apparatus. Doesn't invest in you know some of these training programs that we've identified. We have a need, et cetera. So we're going to continue in this cycle. Unfortunately, we are also going to have probably up to 20% of our members retire in you know in the next two and a half years. Um, so that's a giant succession plan challenge ahead of us. There's going to be a lot of new people. In, in ranking positions, lieutenant, captain, battalion chief, deputy chief, division chief, chief of the bureau, right? There's gonna be a lot of change, but we should be optimistic about that. Um, but I wanna just be open and honest, and, and this is my thoughts about the three years that Portland Fire and Rescue went through. We went through the pandemic, where there was uncertainty about our well-being, our kids got pulled out of school, saturated at home. We had to mask up. Um, if, if you got COVID, you were off for two weeks. There was, you know, if, if you were unvaccinated, you couldn't eat with your, your crew. And if you did, we counseled you, right? Yeah. And it's important to understand the why. If you were positive with COVID, you were off for 14 days. There was a shortcut if, you know, had to test where you were negative. But, you know, we are an asset to the city, you know. So the administration did ha and the city had to take um, an approach where they were trying to minimize the damage. And that same approach was done at the hospital with nursing and doctors, staff, et cetera. And upon reflection, I don't think it was the right approach. But I'm not here to talk about whether or not that was right. I'm, talk, I'm here to talk about the hardship and the trauma. So the pandemic, social unrest, exploding call volume, and houselessness, right? We're just going, and it's not just being exposed to the despair of houselessness and mental illness and not being equipped to handle that, as well as just being exposed to it, but... You know, like, look at truck eight, man. Everyone on I-5 that's driving home, they felt like such great citizens because they called 911 and reported that there was a homeless fire at Delta Park. Yeah. And then truck eight would go in rush hour traffic and and put out a, or verify that it was a houseless uh, warming fire. And then an hour later, they'd go back to their cold dinner. Like, we did this over and over and over again. Our policies did not match the current situation of the city, right? So this is my perspective, but that was a crappy three years. It just sucked. And I don't know that we had great leadership throughout it. Um, that's my perspective. Yeah. With that said, I don't think that you could make that many decisions and throw strikes. I think that oftentimes leadership was faced with, okay, do you want a bad or really bad? Which choice do you want to make? Um, 
But with that said, I'm 48. My dad, in his era, he went through the Vietnam era. He was not in the Vietnam War, but over those six years, almost 10% of the men that were of the appropriate age were drafted. Yeah. So if you weren't drafted and you weren't in the Vietnam War, you were walking around wondering, when am I going to be drafted? And if I'm drafted, I'm going to either die or be changed forever. And your dad's dad was in the World War II era, where tens of millions of people were killed. The U.S. was in the fight of their lives. And we didn't, quite frankly, we didn't know if we were going to win. You know, I mean, Japan came out, you know, this isn't a history lesson, but, um, you know, just to kind of paint the picture, like we had kind of tried to stay out of that war until Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, right? Yes. So my point is just in terms of perspective, that might be our hardship. Okay. Yeah. And I'm not here to minimize um, people's emotions or the trauma that those three years caused. But I think objectively, if most people said, hey, you can choose to go through that period with social unrest, with um, the pandemic, overwhelming call volume, and poor leadership, or you can go live through the Vietnam War, or know that of you and your 10 buddies, one of you was going to get drafted, or you could go through World War II, and it was all hands. If you were home cooking bacon grease, you saved your bacon grease because that was to be used as an incendiary bomb. Yeah. Right? So I just want to provide some perspective. And if you're still hurting and upset and or furious at the city, man, you got to move on. Because as I unpacked earlier, you're harming the next generation with your negativity. Okay? You, ju you just are. As well as... You're hurting yourself. You're hurting your relationships. You're going to walk away with a, a sour taste um, for your career, and you shouldn't because you probably had some outstanding years. You, you, you just have to find a way to put that to bed and move forward. Yeah. And that's, that's where I think we're, we're at. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, that comparison, yeah. I, I mean, it's the, but it's the same it's almost a, it's a larger scale version of getting flooded when the tones go off and you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. If the fire chief, and I, I think I, I mentioned this on a previous conversation, but the fire chief was down in the basement of our station uh, late one night going home and there were a handful of us down there. <clears throat> I definitely was not washing my truck in that time. Uh, <clears throat> and, Water thief. <laughs> and... She comes through and, um, you know, obviously when the fire chief's around, we used to see her a lot. And when the fire chief comes through, you say, hi, how's it going? And, yeah. uh, you know, she was exasperated. You know, it was a late night in the office and it was at the height of, um, I guess, vitriol and pushback and uncertainty with respect to uh, unvaccinated members. And, you know, it was, a, it was a tough time, whether you were involved or not. It was a tough time. People that were getting vaccines were asked to be getting a third shot where some people yeah. hadn't gotten one, you know, yeah. and what, whatever that is, it was a, it was a big deal for everybody, of course. And we were hearing a lot of stories in that time of stations just imploding mentally. Yeah. 
I mean, imploding, yelling at each other, yelling at everybody else, uh, you know, tying vaccines. I mean, I'm not going to get, get into that, but it was just, it was, uh, I mean, I personally, I could hardly believe it because our experience at Station One was anything but that. Yeah. It was anything but that experience. And, yeah. and I, it was almost unbelievable that, you know, my brothers and sisters out there were going through such a traumatic time at work because for me, it was a place of, of certainty. I'm going to come to work. I'm going to put my gear on the rig. I'm going to make sure that the tools that we need for the fire that comes in the next 30 seconds are good to go. And then I'm going to go eat breakfast in the kitchen yeah. with, with, you know, my brothers and sisters. I'm going to have a great day at work. Yeah. And hopefully the big one comes in and we get to go. So, and I think all of us down in the basement at that time, were kind of having a similar reaction, you know, in response to her, you know, emotionally flooded, um, mindset just i don't know what's going on out there this is really tough i mean everybody's yelling at each other nobody likes each other nobody yeah. likes the department i don't know what we're going to do and you know a little bit of a conversation ensued reflecting on that and i mean i you know i i see a little tiny slice of the pie right i'm a firefighter on squad one i have a tiny slice of the pie i've been on c shift the entire time i've been at yeah. once right and in training yeah so obviously the farther up the totem pole you travel you get to see more slices of the pie and hopefully when you're um sitting on the top you see the whole pie but it's easy to miss the slices and for me what got us through that period was training yeah we drilled almost every day and yeah. just like you said it may be how to chop an onion yeah. it may be how to do a horizontal rope system across an expanse yeah. it may be how to force a door yeah but we're training yeah. and for me early on before we refocused in a very large way to fire training yeah. we focused primarily on technical rescue training one yeah. of the things that i like most about tech training is that when you are doing a rope drill yeah. you are in the ideal h when there is a human being at the end of a rope um, and there is a failure of one of those components, that individual will be seriously injured or killed. Yeah. So you have to be on your game. And for me, what that what results is a sense of purpose. Yeah. When we drill, we are we are taken away from going on that homeless encampment fire. We are taken away from um, the 27th fentanyl overdose for the day. And we get to be in a mental space where we get to return mentally and physically to the things that brought us into this line of work in the first place. Yeah. We're here to serve. We're here to train. We're here to get better. And we're here to support each other. Yeah. And for me, yeah. for us, that is the thing that, that, um, that was the way that we surfed that wave Yeah. up and outside of it, be yeah. able to detached, look up and out and say, this is why we're actually here. We are still firefighters. That is what we do. That's what we're ready for. And I mean, there, it was met with the sort of like shrug of the shoulders, which I don't know how you can really respond to that, you know, in a meaningful way. It was, it was late in the evening and she was headed home. But, um, if people, you know, have lost their sense of purpose, if they have lost their understanding of why they come to work and why they are impatient at home or are losing rest or are suffering mentally, emotionally, physically, if you lose the reason that you're doing that, then it's a, it's just, 
torture. It's got to be. Yeah. And we see it. And in the same way that um, we look at the experiences of some people in special operations in the military, there are, or even in, in football, like uh, I believe it was Junior Sale, right? Shot yeah. himself in the chest because he wanted his brain sent to the lab. Yeah. And breachers that force doors with explosive charges. Yeah. Some people operate in that in that space for years and years, and they're good to go. And some people do it for six months, and their personalities start melting. Yeah. Um, but just like when you get emotionally aroused on the way to a fire, having that awareness of what you're doing, that perspective, the ability to detach and yeah. realize how your body and mind is is reacting to this is is the most important part. But yeah. um, keeping uh, keeping a focus on the um, the reason that we're doing this work is, is, is absolutely of, of critical importance. And it's easy to lose that way when we're, when we don't have a culture of training, when we don't have a culture of, or when, when there's room to grow, right. For culture of training or, um, a senior culture where those members, uh, are, can help guide the newer folks through that experience and keep bringing us back to a sense of purpose. Yeah. To just elaborate one more thing on that point, um, uh, Jim McNamara, who is a, a he's a senior truck firefighter in New York and is a, is a regular contributor to the Leadership Under Fire podcast that we were talking about earlier. Um, he has a, a, a series on that show. He's a, a senior man podcast with Jim McNamara. And he talks about the difference between climate and culture. Climate are things that swing like a pendulum. It is the, it's the president, it's the mayor, it's the fire chief, it's your BC. Um, those are things that come and go. It could be your, it could be your boss. It could be the person riding up in the officer's seat. And culture are the things that remain. Culture is the thing that remains when all of those other things have come and gone. When the pendulum swings, what's left over? What's at the center? And the culture is the thing that's hard to make. It's hard to preserve. Um, uh, and once it's gone, it's very difficult to rebuild, but it's the thing that we need to remember. It's the thing that we need to care about and focus on and keep coming back to as a refuge and a focus uh, when, those, when those other things are distracting us from what we really need to be thinking about. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess the question for us and then one of the questions that we have for these series of conversations is, is how do we identify the component parts of that culture and what are we doing every day to build it into what it could be? Yeah, well said. Um, preach on brother. The, the short answer is, I don't know. Like there's, there's not a comprehensive strategic plan for what you just unpacked. Um, but there's hope because there's guys like you, there's conversations like this and there is just a plethora of training opportunities, whether it's internally or externally. And um, but but you have to know that training is the medicine. You know, just to echo what you said, like training is the medicine. It's it's, it's therapeutic. It's purpose. It brings you together as a team. And for me personally, I mean, you tell me where you sit of all the highs and lows in my career executing well on the fire ground fills me in a way nothing else can do it just does and it's because of that sense of purpose as well as just knowing that i put the time in 
I, I've been at this since I was 18, and I've never taken a day off. Well, that's a little strong. I mean, you know, there was probably five years where I wasn't hyper-focused, and I was just a, a knucklehead. But with that said, when you invest that much time and effort into it, whether you're an Olympic wrestler or SEAL Team 6, I mean, you name it. When you execute flawlessly, that's everything. Like all that hard work has paid off. But for us, it's, it's, it's even more deep. It's not a medal. It's saving someone's life. It's saving someone's property. It's minimizing destruction. It's cutting someone out of a car and, and allowing them to, to live to heal up and live. I mean, you know, we, we talked about purpose earlier. Like, well, I just don't understand. I don't understand the why you wouldn't train hard unless you're simply distracted or broken, right? Like, that's what we're paying you for. That's what the ethos is. That's what your primary mission is. So I, it, it's, it's just hard to fathom that, that, are, that there are not as many cultures um, and subcultures out there at stations and shifts, you know, similar to what you guys had at, at station one and what you just described, right? Like I've known that was the medicine since a very young age. Yeah. And I've told anyone that would listen that that's the medicine as a leader, like that's what I've done with my crews. Um, so I, I just don't, I, it's bewildering to me that not everyone knows that. Yeah. to I mean, to piggyback on that sense of hope, I mean, the other component of that for me, too, is that Portland Fire is a very firefighter-driven organization. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is not a department where you roll up at a house fire and the boss turns around and says, I'd like you to take an inch and three-quarter line, you know, off of the left side of the rig and stretch it to the Bravo side of the building and make entry onto that door and fight the fire. This is, this is an organization where people are expected to know what their job is, with what tools, in what area, and get it done. Yeah. And what that fosters is an environment of, of trust over control. We can favor trusting members to do their job rather than having to control them, which yeah. means that the possibilities are endless, of course. And in that firefighter-driven culture, knowing that that's the case, that each individual firefighter has the possibility of making their little sphere of influence a little bit better. Yeah. And because there's so many firefighters, I mean, if only firefighters were the strong leaders in this organization, if only firefighters <laughs> maximize their potential and um, stepped up and realized that that's their role and their responsibility, I mean, there, there wouldn't be anything holding us back. I mean, in, in spite of bad leadership, we would continue to progress. And I think that, you know, through as the climate changes, um, we've seen that uh, across our fire department. Yeah. We've seen crews, individuals, uh, we've talked to some of them here who are pressing forward despite what they see as obstacles in front of them. Yeah. And so for, for those that, just like you said, aren't happy with the, you know, the situation they're in or like, man, this seems, this is weird. It's, you know, part of this is part of this effort. What we're doing here is to let people know that those members are out there and they're thinking about the same things and they're pushing every day personally and on their crews, on their shift, in their station, in their battalion to make everybody else better that's around them. Yeah. 
and to invite the next generation to do the same thing and push yeah. it even farther. I mean, Fook brought it up here. He says, you know, when they do the death announcements at uh, roll call, which are, are great. I love, I love hearing those, right? I mean, you hear about firefighters and occasionally, you know, well, I mean, before Averett retired, you know, you, there weren't many people that were in those death notifications that he didn't remember. Yeah. But um, now there's, I mean, you're like, you're one generation away from never being remembered. That's right. And it's, it's, it's the beauty of it, really, is that you can push the ball down the field here as far as you want, and it will probably stay there, and you won't be remembered for it. You take your finger out of the water, right? And that's, yeah. that's what you're remembered with, with respect to a name, right? Yeah. I mean, there's fire chiefs on the wall, and yeah. you know, there's pictures, and sometimes they're captioned, but um, we're all part of this, this organization that is truly the epitome of something larger than each individual. Yeah. Um, but it depends on obviously each individual doing their part to make yeah. it happen. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, and again, back to the, the 2010 plan, like that's how you leave it. You pass everything, you know, everything you learn, all your advice, you pass it down with the expectation that they grow it, they get better and then they pass it down. You know, Don, Don Russ was always really good to me. We, we were at AIDS together, and then he was the special ops chief and um, invited me or, you know, kind of recruited me to go to battalion headquarters because it was managed by special ops at the time and stuff. But, um, but when he retired, he gave me his bin, which had all his study material, handwritten notes, articles on leadership and at the time I didn't really think much of it I just thought oh okay yeah I guess if I want to study some stuff if I have time I'll I'll pull this thing down and I'll I'll get into it but what I realize now is that was ceremonial to him like that's that's a guy that chose a path of promotion and along the way he had accumulated decades of material that he would go to that helped guide him and move him and um, you know achieve success and have promotions like he wanted to give that to someone and that's what we should all do but we shouldn't wait until we retire mm. right yes like again we need to come back to the table have these conversations we should talk about our successes, but we should talk about our failures at length. And we should pass that along, but more so, to, or additionally, to your point, it's the currency in the fire service, it's not gold, it's not silver, it's not fungible tokens, it's mutual trust and respect. That is the currency. And that currency supersedes all rank. That currency um, is valid on the fire ground or at the kitchen table or anything in between. So what does that look like practically? You're either earning mm. or cashing in that respect and that mutual trust. So 
you're, you're a surfer, bro. You're, you're, you're loose and you, you don't really care about tucking your shirt in. You just don't. You, you think that, you know, here we are 2023 20, and the community just doesn't care about that. We're a long way from high and tight military. And that's genuinely how you feel, Joseph. But if I've done my job, whether it's, you know, the informal leader, firefighter, or um, leadership role, captain, lieutenant, and I say, hey, Joseph, I just want you to know that grooming and uniforms is important to me. If I have earned your trust and respect, you're going to get behind it. And not because you genuinely believe in it. I didn't just change your mind. It's because you believe in me and you're willing to support and invest in my leadership. So that's a currency exchange. And when we talk about leadership styles, you know, it, it's funny because um, I'll go through, I'll, I'll go through an, an interview process and usually one of the questions is, what's, what's your leadership style? And I've heard one leadership answer after another. I'm this and I'm that. I'm here to tell you, you better be all of them because of how dynamic the fire service is. Democratic leadership. Hey, fellas, got to do some target solutions today. I don't care when we do it. Chief's Corner's on as well, um, but we need to get through it. Okay, so you tell me, how do you want the day to go? You want to do it right after roll call? You want to do it after lunch? That's democratic leadership, right? Okay, bureaucratic. Yeah, we got, it's a paramilitary institution, right? Like we have policies and procedures for everything. So you have to have a layer of bureaucratic leadership. Coaching, like we've unpacked 90 minutes about how important it is to, to have coaching leadership. How about certain servant leadership? Your people have to believe in you and believe that you care about them, right? Like if you watch, I'll just say me, I'm not going to throw anyone else out there. You watch me show up to a training, a multi-company drill. You get a handshake, you get a, hey, how's it going? If you see me hugging someone, it's because I spent time with them and we were on the same crew and we love one another in a genuine way. Yeah. We have each other's back. And that is, that's servant uh, leadership, right? Charismatic authority. You have to be charismatic. You have to be a good speaker. You have to be able to communicate. Doesn't mean that, you know, a couple names, I'm sure we both could spit some names out. We have great leaders that probably communication is not their strength and that doesn't mean that that there's not tremendous value in them right but there are times when you have to sell and you have to be a good communicator so the leadership matters like and you shouldn't be just a hey this is my silo i only coach i'm let's talk about authoritative i've had a couple people say you know throughout my career yeah we're just concerned because you're kind of an authoritative leader. My answer to that now is I'm so happy I have that gear because when I'm an incident commander, I'm not running a fire by democracy, right? Like we call that a copy chief. Yeah. Uh, co command copy. Yeah. Hey chief, we think we can make a push here. There's, there's, and we're defensive. Uh, we think we can make a push um, and we found a garage door on the Charlie side. Uh, command copy. 
You want, I promise you, you want an authoritative incident commander that can see the big picture and rely on that mutual trust and mutual respect in situational awareness and what you tell me to stick with the strategic plan or pivot when needed, right? Yes. You want all that. You want to be a dynamic leader and we can grow that in the fire service, but we're not going to grow that very well. It's going to be a Charlie Brown tree if we're at, if we have this pissy, shitty subculture, right? And, and we only have only 20% of our stations foster excellence, 20% foster negativity and the rest of them are just on, just along for the ride. Like we're, we're back to my theory about Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, like, what are we doing? We got to get better, right? And, and we have to problem solve. You know, you talk about where these deficiencies in training. Let's let's go with some solutions. You bring me a proposal, I move it forward. And you, you're in the tech program. You've seen me do that a couple times, right? Absolutely. I'm the tech chief right now. Yep. That's where I'm at. And, and transactional leadership, like Jim Sestrick is my boss. And when Jim asks me to do something, I do it. And I do it well, to the best of my ability. And here's why. There's going to be a time when I'm concerned about a decision that's being made or, or I don't like the direction that we're heading. And guess where I'm going to spend that currency? Yep. Right then and there. And that's how it works. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would be an ideal situation where we all had the same relationship with our boss, right? I don't have, oh, this is the boss I get along with. This is the boss I, whose guts I can't stand. And I don't really, I ignore everything they say. It's like, we just want to have that same even relationship. They ask me to do something, it gets done. Yeah. Right. And then when it's time, just like you said, then that's, they know every single time this guy's putting out every single time I ask him to do something, it's on my desk the next morning, if not that same day. Yeah. Like, well, he obviously, this is not an issue. It's not a personal thing because yeah. I know he's, he's, he's producing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And conversely, let me just, when you're a supervisor and you have guys that are pulling in your direction, if, if you're someone of integrity, like you're going to fall over yourself to help them out when they ask for your help and you're going to treat them with respect and you're going to treat, you're going to value them in a major way. Like there's just a synergy, right? Like that's, yeah. that's how a paramilitary institution in the fire service works best, right? Because we're, we're sleeping together. We're eating together. We're training together. We're doing Christmas together, right? Like yep. it's also this family dynamic. So, you know, back to difficult conversations like if, if if we just promoted you or you're a captain and you don't have any experience in difficult conversations and I'm not talking about pulling someone in and and chewing them up and down I'm about like I'm talking about having a difficult conversation right like you're probably underachieving you just are Right. Like you can't go through 30 years and all these challenges and have this many employees and not have opportunities where people need to have a hard conversation with one another. Right. Attitude based, performance based, policy based, commitment based, character based. And when you navigate through those difficult conversations and it's done in a professional and supportive way, generally, when the fog is cleared, they respect you for it. 
And even if they don't respect you and it's just neutral and they think, oh, that he's just doing his job or she's just doing her job, you've probably arrested that behavior from happening again. And isn't that your job, right? Yeah. The three U's, are they unwilling, unaware, um, unwilling, unaware, or unable, right? Like yeah. that's how most conversations should start when, when someone is simply um, not meeting the expectation. Yeah. You know, but if you don't have any experience, uh, often the trap is, is that you're so anxious that you go into that conversation and it's off the top ropes. You put them in a DDT, <laughs> you, you know, you do a full suplex on them yeah. because you can't get out of there fast enough. Of course. Because you have no experience with the hard conversation. As well as I've had several conversations where I was unaware. And because I took the time to ask them the why or, or, or the situation, it totally changed my perspective, right? So, yeah, I mean, if you're, if people are need to have a, if people need that conversation and you don't have that conversation with them, you're just showing them you don't really care about them. I mean, if you have children, isn't that, that's right. I mean, if yeah. the only reason you have for those hard conversations is because you want a positive outcome in the long term. Yeah. So it's the same, it's the same perspective. If you don't, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, I don't care what happens to that person yeah. and I don't care what happens to their crew when they're operating at the next fire or how yeah. it goes down in their firehouse. I mean, we, but that's another challenging situation that we see so many times, like in, in training, in an era of training, we're out of that era. Yeah. We're on the other side of that era where people yeah. were thrust into positions of training with almost no experience on the job whatsoever. And then now ask them to train these other people. Yeah. And then if they're patterning their behavior on the crusty, salty people that came in front of them, well, they're just going to emulate that same behavior yeah. and terrorize the members coming up behind them. That is, it is completely unfair yeah. to those members that are put in those positions yeah. in the same way that if, if we don't take the time to develop leadership from the very first day that they come through this door yeah. and set positive examples and, and provide training opportunities with real leadership, then when they are good at taking a written test yeah. and they can follow a very procedural assessment center, yeah. of course that's what's going to happen. Yeah. How could anything else happen unless yeah. they... Um, unless they have identified that leadership is a skill and yeah. that they can practice it and get yeah. better at it. Yeah. I mean, it, of course that's what's going to happen, but that's a component. Um, that is a, a component. Like, uh, when I did a instructor two class down at the uh, winter fire school last year down at DPSST. And by the way, there are <laughs> unlimited free classes. They give you lunch too. So that should convince a bunch of people. Uh, to go down to Salem yeah. and they will put you through a free class. All you have to do is sign up and yeah. show up and you can, there are, there are a ton of classes yeah. and because we have a large, um, inbred organization, which has its own training division. Yeah. Um, at that time I was the only member that went through the winter fire school last year. Yeah. Took an instructor two class and, um, you know, it's filled. The class is full with members from small departments scattered all across Oregon. Yeah. And they, when when I told when I told him that there's no task book that needs yeah. to be completed prior to testing for uh, a fire officer exam, they they thought I was messing with them. Yeah, they couldn't believe it. I said Portland, you're, that's the biggest department in the state, right? Yeah, yeah. you don't have to f you don't have to do a task book yeah. before you're a fire officer. Yeah, you take a test 
and do a procedural uh, predict you know, like a very predictable assessment center and yeah. you're in. Yeah. You're in. Yeah. Butler got 30 minutes of high rise training and downtown operations at the last lieutenant's academy. What sort of, uh, you know, if you, um, if you put 10 bucks into a stock, are you expecting to make a million dollars? Yeah. No, no. And it's, and it's unf and then we blow that new lieutenant up when they don't know how to operate. Yeah. In the same way that in the old days of training, we got no forcible entry training. Yeah. They come to a door with a set of irons and can't open an outward swinging door. That's right. And then the senior, senior guy yells at him and says, what, what were you even doing at twos? What were they even teaching you? Well, now you've just taught them never to ask another question for the rest of their careers. Yeah, it's, yeah. this is, I, th I think, you know, all of these things um, we know or have experienced intuitively. And yeah. I think that part of this is just airing that out and realizing that every single time we come to work, we have yeah. an opportunity to make the day, yeah. um, our crew, ourselves, um, a little bit better. Yeah. 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 Let's ad address promotions. And th this is my perspective. And, you know, I proceed with caution. It's a lot like when your wife asks you, do these jeans make me look fat, right? Of course. Um, our promotional process, th there's just no bigger trap to ruining people's allegiance to the organization. Like, you can just get really frustrated um, if you don't get promoted by putting all that time in, by seeing a contract that, that drastically changes um, the retirement timelines, mm. by having scenarios or questions that you don't think are prudent or really capture the value or the challenges in the city. Like, there's just a lot of trap doors, man. There are. And I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of great people that don't get promoted, unfortunately. Like, I, f I feel like I'm a serviceable battalion chief, okay? I'm better than I was a year ago, and if I don't get better a year from now, I'll consider myself a failure because I haven't met my goals, right? With that said, dude, there's firefighters that with the right amount of training could do my job three months from now and would be great at it. Like we, we back to our original statement, <clears throat> there, there's so much talent in this organization and it's the gift and the curse. It's the gift that you get to hang out with this many smart, capable, able people. Yeah. It's the curse when you have to compete against them, right? I believe that in, in terms of fairness, right now the only way you get points is through the military. I believe that we should incentivize education and certificates. I think that there should be points for degrees um, that offset military points, as well as points for pursuing certifications, um, NFPA certifications, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> I don't say that to besmirch the, the military personnel. Some of my favorite guys in the organization are military personnel. And if I'm being open and honest, like those guys are always dialed in discipline and yep. they, they can <clears throat> live in the suck. Like, the, the, you know, their resiliency is 
generally stronger. It just is. Yeah. Because of their experience and their training. But with that said, I think there should be incentives for continuing education. It's not clean cut. Then you turn around and say, well, that's great. Who's going to pay? Do I get time off? Is the Bureau going to pay overtime? What if I don't have the money to travel and someone else does? You know, so it's not clean. But moving forward, I think it's important to have bachelors and masters and fire administration to, you know, be an instructor one, instructor two, fire officer one, fire officer two, all that, right? It's not a magic wand, doesn't mean it fixes everything, but, but, but I think it would be a step in the right direction. With that said, I, I just want to acknowledge that it can be really frustrating, right? Um, seeing someone that maybe you've outperformed on the fire ground or in the firehouse get ahead of you. And it's, it's the cleanest process that city of Portland slash human resources slash iOS can come up with. It's, it's not without its own challenges. And I, I just want to urge people that if you don't get promoted, um, don't give up. Continue to educate. Continue to have progress like we talked about. Um, and move forward and, and look for that opportunity. But if it doesn't work out and you want it, I just would encourage you to not let it derail your career. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, there's without a, you know, one of the topics that <clears throat> we're interested in is developing a robust senior culture. And, you know, in some departments with like a, a driving position or chauffeur or engineer as a sort of a, like a, as an interim promotional uh, step to being a fire officer without that, you know, it's, uh, there are people that, ex you know, people that demonstrate a high degree of proficiency or leadership, it seems like it's the natural step, you know, or, um, I, I often hear, um, conversations around the station about like, oh, you know, when, when are you going to promote, you know, and you know, you'd be a great lieutenant, you know, you should promote and people do or do not for their own reasons um without a you know it's a much more abstract abstract concept like this concept of the senior firefighter and what those roles and responsibilities are and i think that we would i think we would see um you know just like college isn't for everybody being a lieutenant isn't for everybody being a fire officer is not for everyone and that doesn't mean they can't fully they can't be outstanding leaderships and or I'm sorry they can't be outstanding leaders they can't demonstrate a high degree of proficiency um, you know to lead up and down the chain of command but um, it's a much more intangible quality and without that you know with a with a lot of room to grow with that senior culture I, I think it sets people up for more of a disappointment you know when they don't end up being successful with the promotional process I mean I even modifying the process to some degree that, like you said, would um, value things other than being able to successfully navigate an extremely straightforward and predictable testing process would yeah. go a long way for making those people feel valued. Yeah. Um, yeah, we all... Um, but again, I, I think 
that component of resilience that bounces back from failure um, is, you know, is the ability to keep coming back to the sense of purpose. Yeah. I mean, if your sense of purpose solely rests in pushing your chips into the lieutenant exam, then it's time to look in the mirror and figure out why we're here, why I'm here. And I'm not to minimize the frustrations of those members that experience it, but um, there has to be something. And, and, and I, would, I would expect that anybody that um, commits time and energy in a meaningful way to that process would navigate it successfully, yeah. ultimately. Yeah. But I think what you're saying is that there are more ways that this organization can value experience, knowledge, insight, judgment um, in, a, in a real way, in our promotional process. Yeah, and, and as well as um, that it can be frustrating, as well as anecdotally, my experience, we have more great people that are true leaders than we do available positions for leadership. We just do. That is the framework mm, that we yes. live in. Um, but yeah, to echo your point, Joseph, it's like pull that apart. What what is it that you, what is it that you want if you didn't get promoted? Do, do you want to lead people? Well, I would recommend that you go to TAC or Station Two because you have brand new recruits that are going to hang on your every single word. And though I haven't been at Station 2, I've been a TAC instructor, I felt more of a sense of purpose there than any other role. Because every day for eight hours, I knew I could either set people up for success or set people up for failure, as well as on my personal agenda was to demonstrate, this is how you conduct yourself. This is your first exposure to Portland Fire and Rescue, and this is how I think you should carry yourself. So if that's why you want to promote and you don't get promoted, you should think about training. If, if you're bored and you're ready for a change and you've just been at the same company for too long, you should call battalion headquarters and you should find a new home. And even if that's traveling, like you, you want to find out who you are outside of of complacency, you should go travel. New crew, new area of town, new apparatus, and every day, um, you know, you're just gonna hit the ground with whatever the city throws at you, right? Like yeah. that, you wanna go test yourself? Go and change your perspective, you should go travel, you yeah. know? But it comes with difficulties, right? You gotta pack your shit around and. You know, everyone likes to be with their brothers and their family and that sort of thing. And there's value in that. It, it, again, we're talking about what are your goals and where do you want to be? What are you trying to achieve? Yeah. Right? Yeah. A growth mindset. Yeah. 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 I mean, f for me, I only got into one specialty, but if I'm starting my career over again, dude, I'm going through every single specialty I can get my hands on because they all train. They're largely surrounded by the just the best people, the most positive cultures, kick-ass equipment, um, and, and you just get volume, volume in training, volume in incidents, um, volume in, in good leadership, both formal and informal. Um, so that's, that's how I, if I started over, that's, that's what I would do. Hit them all. I would try to. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I would take, man, 
I've, I think I've opened every door. I've walked through every door that's ever opened to me. The only one I regretfully didn't take was um, I got offered and recruited to take the logistics captain position. And ironically, the same day I got offered um, Station 11 as a captain and coming from 30s. Mm. And I took 11s because I, I just wanted to slay the dragon, man. Like I wanted the, <laughs> there's no substitute for experience. Of course. And I wanted to immerse myself in experience. And, um, but logistics would have been pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, 11s is a great house, you yeah. know, and I mean, there's obviously a lot of high speed members there and there's something, there's a lot of things to be said for a non-specialty busy house, you know, 31s, 11s, yeah. 19s, that sort of, that sort of place. It's like, there's no other incentive, but the yeah. people you're working with yeah. and, um, the op tempo. Yeah. 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 And I guess I haven't addressed that, but again, back to, um, you know, part of what I do is courtside seats, man, there's some crews out there that can execute like these guys are incredible. They put the time in, they're calm, cool, and collected. You know, everything is steady slash urgent progress, great radio reports, good decisions. Uh, I mean, I'm a fanboy, man. When I'm on the fire ground and guys are throwing strikes and I'm comfortable because I know whatever plays I call, they can yeah. execute. I'm a fanboy, dude. Yeah. I I'm just... I'm just, I'm still a fan of the fire service. I think it is an amazing machine. Yeah, absolutely. And really in your position, when you have those crews, knowing that you have those crews, and I'll tell you from listening, you can absolutely hear it in the sound of your voice when you're commanding a fire, whether it's going one way or the other. Yeah. And I mean, of course, everybody, um, Every, that's going to happen to some degree, no matter what. But I just, I think it speaks to the fact that you have in your mind, you know, what's possible, Yeah. you know, and the ability to, you know, people that function at really, that are very high performing individuals, they tend to be allergic to uncertainty. Yeah. And there's only so many things that each individual can control. And at some point it's left to the rest of the team. Yeah. Yep. You can have your gear squared away. You can know what the priorities are. You can practice the radio voice. You can have all of those things ready to roll, but yeah. ultimately, um, curveballs are going to come your way. Yeah. Um, and being able to minimize the number of variables that you encounter every time you go to work is, um, what seems to get those, uh, those people through those challenging incidents. But, um, and, and really gets you into a frame of mind where you're in that trust space. You don't need to be in that control space. You can be, you can trust yeah. knowing that, especially with crews that tend to favor writing positions, right? Yeah. Positional based firefighting. You don't have to wonder and, and imagine that being broadly applied across the fire department to truck operations. You don't have to think what shift am I on? What rig is that? Yeah. Who's working to yeah. know that, oh, that's easy the driver and the tillerman are going around to the Charlie side of the building with a ladder and these tools, and they're going to operate in this area doing this job, prioritizing, you know, this set of circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it just allows you to focus on the things that are actually important on the fire ground. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a marriage, Joseph. Well, well said, but here's the reality. I don't ever run a fire I can't see. Okay, I did that one time and I said, I'll never do it again. So I will get into whatever apparatus or I will park on the lawn so that I can see because I need to see in real time what the conditions are, what the smoke looks like, the pace in which uh, companies are um, deploying. I need to know when they enter the IDLH because, you know, there are two bottle fires and I don't want to get caught on my heels in recognition that, oh, these guys are their bells are going to go off any minute, and I don't have somebody waiting on standby at the command post so that we can remain offensive. But, yeah, I mean, just to unpack it a little bit, um, there's room for me to grow, but particularly for city of Portland, like I put the time in. Uh, I, I'm mapped for taxpayers. I'm mapped for residents. I'm mapped for two or three structures going. I'm mapped for a giant... Irvington, you know, three-story with dormers and half-story, a map for a commercial tilt-up. Um, like, I'm ready to go. I, I can play call. And that, that doesn't, I say that humbly. I only say that because I, I'm, I'm done. There, there's, I don't pull out any cheat sheets. I don't try and, you know, turn into a copy chief and wait for all that information to come to me. So back to the marriage. I can see what's going on in real time. And when you enter the IDLH, you can't see what I see. But what you can is tell me your progress and what interior reports are. So if we are not communicating our situational awareness meter, it, it's, it's dipping. So I got to know what you know, and you need to know what I know. You know, there's a couple guys, and I appreciate the guys that want to talk about fire and my how I run um fires and whatnot it's unique you know everyone should have their own fingerprints but when you listen to me run my fires i'm like a i'm like an announcer at a baseball game right like i don't want to over talk and suck up air time but i want you to understand the big picture and what my concerns and expectations are um, in real time so if i tell you there's fire that's extended to the half story you know, engine one, your fire tax, second floor, there's fire that's extended to the half story on the alpha side, bring tools. Okay. Like that, that's how, it, and if you're in route, you know, oh, this is an exterior fire that's got fire through window failure on the first floor. And we already have window in the half or fire in the half story, et cetera. That's how I do business. If airtime is in a premium, I'll pull back a little bit. Um, if, there's plenty of airtime, um, and the situation is dynamic and maybe becoming more urgent. You'll hear me um, c convey the changes so that everyone understands what's going on, right? Yeah. Um, but again, back to training, man. If you can't execute and you haven't put the time in, you're, you're just reducing the plays that I can call and as well as you're putting people in danger. Right. Yeah. Well, so. you you have to be risk averse, which detracts from, you know, successfully completing the mission. Yeah. Yeah. The mission is not to stay alive. The mission is to get those human beings out of that burning building. Yeah. And, and there's layers to this, man. Like you go into the half story. Is it sheetrock? Is it lath and plaster? Is it sheeting? Because you can put a boot through sheetrock and knock the whole thing out. Lath and plaster, that's kindling. And you're going to have more fire in those stud spaces um, as well as, 
if we don't vent and this is a high pressure um, free burning fire in that half story, lath and plaster fails in giant sections because it's heavy, it's concrete, right? Yes. So it's more dangerous. I, I, I'm less, <clears throat> I, I'm more concerned about sending crews up there to search without a hose line, right? Yeah. If we arrive late in the game to a well-involved half-story fire, if it's <clears throat> if it's sheeting, you're not going to poke through that. I'm not going to hand you a chainsaw in the IDLH, whether it's battery or gas, right? Like I'm going to have the Rick crew bring a topside line to the truck company that's all out for vent. But you have to share all back to the marriage. You have to tell me what's going on, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when when things aren't going well at a fire yeah. that you're where you're the IC yeah. um, and you feel yourself getting ramped up, yeah. What um, what do you do in the moment to sort of bring yourself back down? Or rather than I mean, if you don't typically find yourself in the position where you're getting you know um, ramped up yeah. or you know the heart rate's coming up, having that response, um, what do you do to keep yourself at an even keel then? I mean, to me, I'm all mission focused. And again, you know, I'm, I make mistakes. There's better chiefs than me out there, but you're, you're talking to me. So you're going to get my answers. I've only had two fires that I thought were really going sideways. And I, I was, there, there was just an urgency yeah. or a level of danger, right? Um, so I was safety on one of them, which was, you know, you can find all this stuff, um, in target solutions under operations, fire liaison, then break it down to R fire, C fire, A fire. So I was safety. I didn't feel like the scene was tied together and there, there, there was a cohesiveness on what strategy and tactics need to be implemented. I just started shot calling. Bring this line here. Here's what you have mm. exterior. Most urgently do this. Um, you know, we got we got good smoke. We have fire in the half story. Um, you know, we, we just need to put it out. Yeah. We need to open up some walls, get right. up there. Um, so I kind of went cowboy on it, you know. And then we had another one on Lombard where, you know, if, if you wanted to pick a building that was the farthest away from any chief, meaning whatever companies were there, we're going to run that thing for 12 minutes, this is the spot you'd pick, okay? And it was a church fire, and when I showed up, we were offensive, and I saw way too much fire. So if you listen to my cadence, um, I always say, you know, C4s arrive. Again, we have a two-and-a-half-story wood frame. We got fire showing. Like, I will resize it up. That's how I start my cadence, right? Um, yeah. I showed up, and I said, C4s arrive. All companies stand by for emergency traffic and withdraw. Hit the emergency tones, pull everyone out, and eight minutes later, that building collapsed. And I knew in real time, like when I show, showed up viscerally, I, I knew this was very dangerous. And this is city of Portland. We're an old city. We just don't get a lot of building collapse. Um, but this was a wood frame church that already had fire blowing out of the um, steeple. And it... it we just we shouldn't have been in there um and with that said those fires are very dynamic and constantly changing so what the first arriving officer saw is not what i saw some eight minutes later 
right? So in no way, sh shape or form was that officer being reckless. That officer was simply um, making a, a strategic decision for what conditions were shown at the time. But as soon as we opened that thing up and it blew up, we're not, I mean, no one's in a church at three in the morning, right? So back to the risk, what's our risk profile? Anyhow, on that one, pulled everyone out, set it up defensive, grabbed multiple hydrants, and that thing laid down rather quickly. Um, so I'm hopeful, you know, I'm gonna retire in eight years. I'm just a toddler. Man, I'm running around, I got big boy pants on, and but I'm just a toddler, man. If I retire at this wherewithal, what a failure. What an absolute disservice to the city, to Portland Fire and Rescue employees, and to the entire community, right? Like, I have to keep going. I got to be, you know, that, that largely was done with instincts. I need to arrive with just a better concept and understanding of, of building construction and how, you know, how long that the fire has mm -hmm. been burning, et cetera. Just... You know, we just, again, back to progress. We, we have to continue to move forward. Yeah. So. So what does that look like for your, the the career for the eight years that you're talking about? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I practice what I preach, you know. Um, I want to continue to grow. Like just, I've, I've been a BC for three years. What have my assignments been in three years? Kelly Relief, BC downtown bc which is a whole nother animal um ems bc and now c4 so i want to continue to grow and to get out of my comfort zone you know, here's the reality joseph is again back to how lucky are we to work for portland fire and rescue there's four different departments here you got downtown in a historic downtown with center hallway we saw that with the may fire just had another one with um, the unthanked plaza, like we're getting center hallway fires, okay? Yeah. Then you've got high-rise, both modern and unsprinkled old law high-rise, okay? You've got the West Hills. That's a suburban department. Like you're talking 20 minutes before a whole complement gets there. You may have um, some very tough over 600-foot lays. Like that's a suburban department. And it gets even more tricky when we talk about ice and snow up in the West Hills. Then you go to felony flats. Like these are these are all small, you know, thousand foot structures. Probably a lot of substance abuse, homelessness, alcohol, meaning a, a larger sure. rescue profile. Homes that are getting called in late because they don't have, um, you know, smoke detectors and detection systems. So you're you're showing up on smaller fires, but oftentimes they're more well involved. And then you've got. The Irvington fires, the, the big fires, Alameda, you know, you've got three stories that are just stubborn bastards. Yeah. Like there's so many concealed space. It's all conventional. Like that's, we talk about two bottled fires. Once those get going, those are two bottled fires. Like you better go second alarm or order an extra truck and engine, right? So to answer your question, I'm into the fight right now. You know, like I know that I suspect that there, there's so many great people, administration and program management. It's not my strength. Doesn't mean that I couldn't do that, but it's just not the basket that I put my eggs in. And thank God we have those people. Yeah. Because um, we do have some good administrative chiefs and program managers and we need them. But I'm into the fight, man. 
And I don't say that arrogantly. I want to keep people safe. I want to continue to train. Um, I want to continue to pass on as much knowledge uh, as possible. I want to continue to praise and help people feel valued that are out there doing it. Like, that's what I want to do. And and when I feel like I've reached the end of that chapter, I'll look around and I'll find the next challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Outstanding. What else do you want to talk about? I love it. (laughs) I know you got another bullet point Uh, on there. uh, For all those listening, this poor (laughs) bastard, it's Saturday and he's got to travel to Eugene with his family and I've been running my mouth. That's why you're here. Yeah. So... um, Nothing, brother. I'm grateful for your time, grateful for this opportunity, and, and, and I'm a work in progress. So if I've, if I've said something that needs to be, and I'm wrong, or I've offended someone, um, pl- please bring this to my attention, and we talk about having hard conversations. Let's have that conversation. So I don't have it all figured out. This is just a snapshot of where I am. If you were to interview me 10 years ago, it would have been completely different. And eight years from now, it'll be completely different. Yeah. So, um, and with that said, you know, if, if, if I can help you achieve success or, or you're, you know, if there's anything I can do for you, I'm here. Just, just let me know. Because I'm, I'm like a vampire. Like, I generally don't go and impose my will and run my mouth unless I'm invited. That's just the way, that's kind of the way I operate. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm an omnivert. What does that mean? It means my resting, uh, you know, like you, I think, <laughs> um, I'm pretty quiet and cautious and, and just reserved. Um, but if, if I need to step up and, and run it and, and, you know, be an extrovert, I can do that. Like that's back to who my parents are. We're all part of who we are is the DNA that, that is woven. Yeah. Um, and that's, like I said, man, I'm, I'm like my mom and that I'm compassionate and loving and caring about the community, but I also am, you know, a rough and tumble cowboy like my daddy, Yeah, you know, and I can pretty much operate anywhere in that bandwidth. Yeah. But I really appreciate you being here today. Um, you know, you're, I think you are, uh, we, we are very fortunate right now in that we have, we have a handful of battalion chiefs that are firefighters at heart and they're students of the game. They want to continue to focus on their blind spots and see um, the opportunities for growth. And being able to keep the, the mission and the people in this job and first and putting the public safety above all else. And I, I just, I think we're in a really great time in that people are pretty young and they're gonna be here for a little while. And that as we continue to develop our culture of growth and training and maximize experience to improve judgment that we will be able to, I mean, I mean, this, this guy's the limit for us. I think you're certainly an example of somebody that takes their job seriously without being, uh, arrogant about it, which is obviously very important. I think we can all agree that humility is right up there at the top of the list when it comes to leadership qualities that we can admire. 
and consistency. So thanks for your time. I really appreciate being here and speaking honestly. I think uh, this is a great conversation. I think people are going to get a lot out of this. Thank you. Um, my pleasure. Thank you very much.